As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 92 of Real Blend, a podcast that still can't get on the Disney Plus app. Man, it has been a day trying to get onto that app and enjoy all of that amazing content. But the one thing I was able to watch, and I know that BDK was able to watch it too, because we both got on super early on the East Coast time, is episode one of The Mandalorian. Let's talk about it in great detail right now. Well... <laughs> Funny enough, I was gonna actually. Gonna I will ask walk you away from this show. I swear to God, Jake. This is this is more of a joke than anything else. Um, John, I was wondering if you saw the uh, deleted scene for the Mandalorian that Disney that Disney Plus put up on the uh, on the app this morning. I missed it. No, what happened? It, what? it was a great scene, um, yeah. and it was a moment where the Mandalorian gets his name. Right. And he shows up in a vehicle, which was really strange. Yeah. And the vehicle was actually an homage to Mandalorian's favorite director, Robert Zemeckis. It was right, a DeLorean. Right. Oh, so the guy wow. goes, oh, you're a man and you're driving a DeLorean, the Mandalorian. That's and then actually, John, and then Favreau Jake. came out. And then served everyone a cheese pizza in the scene. And, and, and the Mandalorian had to put it up through his mask and eat it. It was really weird. It was but, pretty great, though. That's yeah, I was, I was just really mad that they cut that out of the pilot. I was like, it was a great scene. You're a man in a DeLorean. Yeah, I was just God, very Jake, that was really good. This All is right. the shortest amount of time it's taken to get the rap from Gabe. We're like right. 18 seconds into the episode, and we're already getting to move on. We got to go. Well, as mentioned, uh, we're going to be getting into some Disney Plus content today with all of that amazing stuff dropping, including Mandalorian. No spoilers. Jake hasn't seen it yet. Uh, we're going to talk briefly about the Snyder Cut. And if anybody's following me on Twitter, might be curious as to why I'm I'm uh, obsessed with the uh, longer extended cut or the director's cut of Justice League. Uh, we're going to finally get into some Irishman talk. And uh, we're going to discuss Dr. Sleep at the box office. And then we're going to be joined by someone very special to the show. <laughs> Gabe is going to speak on the show and talk to us about the time that he got to visit the set of uh, Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. So stay tuned. We finally get to hear him speak. We also don't know if Gabe's going to approve his own audio. So it actually might not make it into the podcast unless Gabe approves it. So right. well, let's hope he does. What if he comes on the show and has like a super high-pitched voice? What if, now, can, can we wrap him? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That'd be funny. I'm expecting like an epic Silent Bob type speech, like, you know, where he hasn't spoken for all this time and he's going to give us some incredible, detailed, thought provoking thing about life. And uh, or we like hype it up and he gets on and he goes, eh, that was pretty cool. Hey, it was yeah. fun. Or yeah, the it. first words out of his mouth are hashtag bathroom blend, which I'm very excited to hear. <laughs> Right. Introductions. Uh, let me get to the boys and then explain one or two changes that we're making to the show. Uh, these voices that you hear alongside me, as you do each and every week for 92 straight episodes, uh, is Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, handsome. How are you? My man, how are you, sir? I'm wonderful, thank you. Uh, and also joining us, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kevin. How are you? You know, about that Mandalorian deleted scene. Oh, my God. No, no. Good morning. I'm, I'm joking. Good morning, was, afternoon, was, everything. This is awesome. Kevin, that was really funny. Don't let anybody tell you that it was no, not very funny. Thank you. Sean, I, I, your approval on that is everything to me. So thank Good. you. Excellent. Um, I'm still I'm still a little salty about the whole Gerald's Game Boy thing, if I'm being honest with you. <laughs> that was Jake, I listened back to that audio as, yeah. as like an audience member. And when it happened, I laughed so hard. Because just to take it people behind the scenes just a little bit on this, and I know this happened to Kevin also. When you made that joke, your audio got blurred yes. or hiccuped and neither yep. of us legitimately heard what you said. Yeah. And I knew the minute that I saw Kevin make a face too, your, your audio just dropped out, yep. but it was so much funnier that we didn't give you any <laughs> recognition of your fun at all. I, I think uh, I actually <laughs> even say in the audio that I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm, I genuinely missed yeah, it. I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to be mean or anything. You well, did. I earned us the E on that one. <laughs> yes, you did. All right. Um, we have uh, interviews at the top of the show uh, that we are going to throw to. And I'm just going to mention, we're going to move the review section where we read um, such nice things about us uh, a little bit later in the show so we can get to some of the the, the, the better content that's, you know, less, less self-congratulatory. God, I'm having a hard time today. What's the matter? Should we restart? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we always do the weekly You're, you're poll. buffering just like Disney+. Plus. Yeah, jeez. Oh, do you know how many spinning <laughs> wheels of... I didn't have any issues with Disney Plus. Uh, I've had a bunch so far today trying to get on stuff. Um, but we also have a weekly poll. And uh, we put it up on Fridays and then we discuss it in the next episode. And the results of this one are borderline fascinating. So later on in the episode, we're going to review The Irishman. We're still keeping it spoiler free. Is that true, Gabe? Because of Netflix's platform? Um, because he hasn't seen you guys, it. Because he hasn't seen it, selfishly. Uh, we asked, when will the Blenders see... The Irishman. Kevin, I'm going to let you answer this one. Uh, I'm going to give you the three choices, and then you're going to tell me which one you think won. Okay? First choice, uh, I'll search for a theater to go see The Irishman. Two, eventually on Netflix. And three, no real interest in this movie. Sadly, and I have not seen the results. Sadly, I would probably say it's number two. Um, my hope would be that people would choose number one and actively search for a theater. Um, I know that I'm paying to see it again uh, next week in a theater. Uh, but listen, I understand not everybody has access to a theater, and I'm totally sure. understandable about that. Yeah. I'm going to go with number two, getting the most results. You are 100% right. Uh, 56% of the people said they are eventually going to watch The Irishman on Netflix. Now, because it's the Blender audience, and I think that a lot of people who listen to the show support theatrical as much as we do, um, 36% of them said they're going to go out of their way and search That's for the That's awesome. Theater. But like, I'll That's use Charlotte number. as an example. Charlotte, the closest place where you can see it is Atlanta right now. And oh, that's wow. a good three and a half hour, four yeah. hour drive. Now, we are going to get it in one of our quote unquote independent art house cinemas that's not tied to a Regal or an AMC, 
but they're not going to be able to bring it. They're going to bring it through the Charlotte Film Society and they're going to bring it like second week of December. Yeah. And there are only two theaters right now in Chicago and Chicago is market three. Same. We have two in, in the D.C. area. And I, I want to ma- make this very clear to people. I mean, like, please try and search for a theater if you can. I mean, it is it is a great movie to see in a theater. Uh, Jake and I saw it together at the premiere. I know Sean saw it in a theater. It mm-hmm. is. But I understand not everybody can get to one. Like I know sure. Jake said there's two. Like if you live in the D.C. area and you're listening to our podcast right now, it's playing at East Street and Bethesda Row uh, in, in our area. Jake, do you know the two theaters in Chicago? Did you I mention it? don't, but okay. I know at least one of them has to be pretty close to downtown because my right. boss went and saw it and he lives downtown. So just just look. Make sure you're when you're looking up theater times for this movie, make sure you look for them. It's not going to be at Regal, as Sean said. It's not going to be at AMC. And that's because of the whole deal of them not getting exclusivity to release it for a certain number of days prior to Netflix's streaming. So just do yourself a favor. Try and find it. I love that 36%. That's actually a really high number. I thought it was going to be lower. People were going to be like, oh, I'll wait till the 27th or whatever comes out on Netflix. So I have a bigger beef with the 8% of people who checked no real interest in this. (laughs) (laughs) Like who follows Real Blend but has no interest in seeing The Irishman? Like who like what what is the inside of that? What is it? The Venn diagram? Like who is the inside? Like who are those eight people? I want to meet those people. people. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you still listening to us? (laughs) What are you getting out of this show? To to quote Office Space, what would you say you do here? (laughs) I think it was. It's probably Kevin Feige on superhero content. Yeah, they really was. Him and his team went on there and clicked that. All right. Um, As I mentioned, we are going to throw the reviews back a little bit later in the show because we want to get to some of the things that we're really, really excited about. And uh, it's been lately our interviews. Um, And Jake this week was able to sit down with Bill Condon, the director of The Good Liar, um, a movie that I'm potentially going to see tonight. And um, and Condon's had a crazy career. And then, Jake, you had an opportunity to really go over a lot of the highlights of that career. Talk to us about um, the time you got to sit down with him in, in New York for this. Yeah, you know, this is one of those interviews that uh, I, I don't want to say that I wasn't excited about it, uh, but, you know, we, we, we get... I'm He's not going to listen to this. <laughs> but it was just one of those that uh, there were just so many things going on that it was really a couple of days before before I had a moment to kind of pause and prep and, and really look into uh, preparing for this interview. And it was upon that preparation that it really hit me how wide and expansive and different and really impressive his filmography really is. Yeah. And I went from a couple of days before going like, oh, I don't really know what I'm going to ask to the morning of going, I've got way too much stuff to ask because the guy that directed Dream Girls and also directed a Twilight film and also directed a live action Disney film and also directed The Good Liar and also directed Candyman yep. is the same guy. Like <laughs> they did all of this stuff, which yields so many different questions. So I really think he's uh, one of the more interesting subjects that I've been able to sit across uh, this year and really was a fascinating conversation. And we got to cover a little bit of everything. Um, so I was actually, I walked away very excited about this guy, uh, and, and I, he has, he has my utmost respect because he is, he is a, a film, uh, a filmmaker who you cannot nail down to one genre, which I think is, uh, is a very impressive thing to say. And he's an Oscar winner. And he's an Oscar winner and tells an amazing story about his theory on, uh, the Eddie Murphy controversy with the Oscars, which I was so glad that you brought up. So without further ado, why don't we get right to... Bill Condon sitting down with Jake Hamilton on behalf of the Real Blend Podcast. All right, we have a very special guest on Real Blend this week, the director of The Good Liar, Mr. Bill Condon, Academy Award winner, Bill Condon. Bill, how are you, sir? I'm good. Do you, do you get that introduction often? Is it sort of like, you know, being knighted uh, Academy Award? <laughs> do, do people just always introduce you as Academy Award winner? Um, 
Uh, yeah, more than you would think. Yeah. It's surprising. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, stamped yeah, on yeah. you for the rest of I your life. I guess so. It's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. yeah. They, they forget the Razzie. Yeah, well, pfft. Right. You, you know what? Uh, I, I learned recently that Stanley Kubrick got a Razzie nomination for uh, The Shining. So sometimes, oh it, sometimes it's a stamp that. of approval. I love that. So I want to start talking about these are two such well-written characters. On, yes. on page before you even start rolling, they're such great, well-written, well-rounded characters. And then you find out they're going to be played by Sir Ian McKellen and Dame Helen Mirren. Yep. How much does your perception of these characters and your perception of what this film is going to be change once you know that you've got those two actors? Oh, yeah. That's really good. The um, Yeah, so they're both um, – th- this – Book is based on a novel, and and these characters are both obviously in the novel, and 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 not altered too much. But um, let me take it one at a time. With Helen, she really, when we met, said often she'll play somebody like Catherine the Great, who is different from her. She has to do some research, but this part she thought she intersected intersected with a lot of things about her, and I felt the same way. You read the book and you think, oh my God, she'd be good at that, you know. Um, but because it was close to her, then there are just lots of bits of behavior. She had one big thought about about a twist, which 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 was brilliant. But then you start to yes, to make those adjustments because uh, it's really all about what she would do in a way because she is so close to that woman. With Ian, you know, obviously um, this is this is the socio Ian is not remotely a sociopath. You know, um, this is someone who is quite different from him, but more in line with the whole career on the stage of playing Shakespearean villains. But it's villains, cool right? to see him like that, though. Isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? Because people just have used to, gotten used to seeing him twinkle all the time as, as Gandalf, yeah. you know? Um, in movies, he hasn't done this as much as he did, you know, in the first part of his career on stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the chemistry between the two of them, I, we know movies well enough to know that, that acting is not easy, but they make it look easy, and the chemistry yeah. between them is incredible. You can have two great actors and not automatically have chemistry between the two. It's not an automatic thing. These two just have it. How long does it take for you into the process to know, okay, I've got, like, we're good. I got this. I have to say I cheated here because I'd seen them on stage um, in Dance of Death Mm -hmm. in 2001, I think it was. And it was, you know, a very, very different story, you know, but that that is a play where these two, this man and woman, just keep going at each other, really, really decimating each other. So it, it was a constant seesaw of power, you know? And to watch them go toe-to-toe during a three-hour evening and to be just fascinated by the whole play of it, you know, um, I knew I knew that they could handle each other. Yeah, you, know? you got it. So, yeah. Obviously, you've worked with Sir Ian before. Yeah. Um, and you worked with him... Uh, Gods and Monsters, before the rest of the world kind of came to know him right. as Gandalf and, yes. and Magneto. Because right. there's a whole generation of younger fans who specifically know him for these franchise characters. Right. What is it like to work with someone and then down the road see them blow up in these massive franchises? So I met Ian when he was 56, and I was offering him a part, uh, a, a character who was 67 and near death. And the one... Uh, hesitation he had about it was that people didn't know him in movies and they would think he was older than he was, you know. And I was able to kind of reassure him because the character was also playing 35 and he, he agreed to do it. But getting to know him at that point, which is 1997, he said, my plan now in my mid-50s is to become a movie star. Now, when you hear somebody say that, it's kind of like, well, Great luck. Yeah. And then, yeah. But I have to say, I've never seen anybody just systematically go ahead and do 
what he wanted to, you know, he would make it happen. And so, yes, it was interesting, you know, to watch first X-Men. Because he had to be, that had to be around the time he was starting to hear rumblings of, because it wasn't too long after that that's that he right. got X-Men. That's right. So he had to start yeah. hearing rumblings no, of No, yeah, he had just come from Brian Singer doing App Pupil, and by the time we were finishing, X-Men was on the horizon, wow. right? And then Lord of the Rings, it all happened pretty fast, yeah. you know. Lord of the Rings... I mean, that huge first movie opened only three years after Gods and Monsters. So he was shooting that within I didn't how 18 close months. That yeah, was yeah, together. yeah, yeah. That's insane. Uh, so obviously, you know, you've worked with, with Sir Ian multiple times. I'm curious as to what does it take for, for, in, for an actor to have for you to go, I want to work with that person again. And I'm not asking you to name names, but are there aspects about an actor that makes you go, I don't want to work with that person again? Ah. You know, I think there is a basic thing. It, it, it's do they love doing it? You know, because I do find that there are a lot of reasons that people get into movies. Most actors are desperate to do it and are great at it. But you will occasionally come across people who don't seem to be taking the pleasure in it that you wish they would. Or you're maybe not taking the pleasure anymore. And that is the only the only thing that I would say, you know, having done it now for a few years, that you sort of see and you think, oh, that wasn't fun. You know, you want everything to be fun in some basic way. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is, the, the film takes place in, in 2009, and one of the great timestamps that you use, very briefly, but it's a yeah. very fun moment, is the use of, of the lead characters going to see Inglorious Bastards. Yes, that's right. You could have picked any film that came out that year to sort of say, hey, this is the one. Right. Why Inglorious Bastards? Well, you know, it, this movie has a lot of twists and turns, right? And, and I think your job as a director is to, you always want to stay one step ahead of the audience. You don't want them ahead of you. But when you do have a big twist, you want to have given them enough clues so that they say, oh, God, I get it. So Inglorious Bastards, it's not just setting up the fact that it takes place 10 years from now. Inglorious Bastards takes place in the war, right? And slowly in the first part of the movie, you, you hear that, you hear a little bit about uh, Ian's character having been in the war, you're laying these clues that that everything that's happening now that we're watching has something to do with what happened back then. So it was a clue. You know, I, I this is such an inside baseball question, but my first thought was a lot of times when uh, a studio film uses a, a film from the past, it's from that studio. I think in Doctor right. Sleep, they walk out of the theater and there are two movie posters on the theater and they're both Warner Brothers films. Right, right. And I was like, okay, well that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, Bastards was not a Warner Brothers film. It wasn't. Was it hard to to go get the rights to that? It was a little scary because Tarantino was great about it. He was a good sport. You have to reach out to him? Yes. What is that conversation like? Um, It wasn't a conversation. It was through uh, various people, but he was very, very, really accommodating and helpful. However, as you know, the Weinstein company that financed that movie was in the throes of huge legal problems and bankruptcy and all that. So it it was unclear who actually owned the rights, mm-hmm. you know, and we got lucky. It was just before we started to shoot it. Um, everything worked worked out. Was there a backup movie in case it didn't we work did out? We did shoot them watching a backup movie. Absolutely. Can I ask what it was? Atonement. Oh, which still kind of makes right. sense. Exactly. Still kind of makes sense. That's interesting. Um, whenever you have a nice, like, tight thriller like this. A lot of times the first adjective that people use is, uh, they, or at least they compare it to Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Uh, which just by nature, you know, it makes sense. Is that something on set that you're going after? Like, oh, like Hitchcock would have done it like this? Or is that just, yeah. so, is that almost lazy on our part to just automatically call it Hitchcockian? It's interesting. I think Hitchcockian is, is a, first of all, a great compliment. And I, I love that people might describe it that way. I find for myself, I was... Um, 
I first fell in love with movies by falling in love with Hitchcock. You know what's different though? Uh, you know, a first movie that I made, it was a you know a swamp thriller called Sister Sister that nobody saw in nineteen. 19- I've seen it since. Okay, good. I love right. Sister Sister. By oh, the way. Whenever great. I tell people that you that you work with Sister Sister, they go, "Oh, really?" I go, "No, not that Sister Sister. Different, <laughs> right, different exactly. one." Exactly. But I have to say, you know, when you're making your first movie and you're young, um, and that had thriller aspects and suspense. You do find that, I have to say, it's, it's a combination of Hitchcock and, and uh, De Palma, but you find yourself kind of literally thinking, how would they shoot it and things like that. Now you cut to 30 years later, and, and so you're swimming in the same waters, but it was never a question of that. I never, I think, you know, you grow beyond that into sort of finding your own style. So I was never literally thinking, how would Hitchcock approach that scene? It was more thematic and it was more the sense that um, you um, uh, were going to be asked that you were going to ask the audience to become complicit with this bad guy and that really delicious thing that Hitchcock would do sometimes of making you root for someone who's a killer. Yeah, I love whenever I love a bad guy. That's that's, right? that's yeah. the best feeling. It's interesting, I think, because Christoph Waltz did the same thing with Inglourious Basterds. Exactly. I love how he yeah, did that. Yeah. So when we mention Hitchcock, we know exactly, like you say Hitchcock and a type of film pops up in your right, mind. Right, right. I say Bill Condon, and you could say it to 100 different people and get 100 different answers as to what that means, because your career— Who? Yeah, well, well, no, I disagree, sir. You, you, you're Academy—excuse me, Academy Award oh, right, winner, Bill course, Condon. Of course, of course, yeah. Right. Your career, your filmography is so wide and so expansive and so interesting. How do you sum up what kind of director you are? Um, you, you know, I think it, it's hard. I think you never can, and there are, uh, for me, very obvious connections between all the movies, but I would say in general— um, I feel like I've never wanted to be a director who made movies of the moment. You know, that there's something I've always loved, and it's why I still perform the, the two-hour form to long-form television, which is doing great things. I still always love the sense that you're doing something that can speak to people years from now, right? So in that, you want to approach it in a way that kind of uh, reflects and respects all of the the kind of classic um, style of making movies. And for me, I guess that's the movies that I grew up with, whether it was Hitchcock or, or musicals or romantic melodramas, sort of being part of that tradition is important to me. You know, because you've done, you know, musicals and because you've done, yeah. you know, Disney films and Twilight and horror right. films and, and, and Oscar-winning dramas, there, you could talk to 10 different, 10 different people and 10 different people would want to talk to you about 10 different movies. What is the movie that if someone, if you clock someone coming at you from across the street and they want to come talk to you, right. what's the movie that in your mind you think they're probably going to want to talk to me about this? It's always usually Candyman 2. Why Candyman 2? That was a joke. I was, dude, I like the Candyman movie. They're actually shooting a new Candyman in Chicago right now. I know. Right I can't wait yeah. to see that. Yeah, I know. That'll be interesting. Um because Jordan Peele is producing it, I yes, think, right? Yeah. yeah. I was getting really excited. I honestly thought I for a second that the answer was going to be Candyman, <laughs> and that really excited me about the type of person that comes up to you. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting, I have to say, um, it's, almost, it's often God's a monster still. Mm-hmm. The people actually bother to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's still um, a movie that, for those people who liked it, it meant something personal and, yeah. and special to yeah. them. Yeah, it's a beautiful, and I... I 
it looked like for a moment like it was going to happen, but I really hope Brandon Fraser like sort of comes kind of comes know, back and, yeah, and, and sort of too. the forefront. Me too. He's such an incredible actor. Incredible. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, you know, I'll, I, this is sort of a, a goofy, fun question, but because your filmography is so wide, I love this idea. A lot of times in trailers, they'll go like from the director of this, right, right. and I thought about what would be the weirdest pairing. Uh, you know, because I think as I saw recently on a, on a poster for Mad Max Fury Road, right. they put from the director of Babe Pig in the City. What would be the, what would be the most interesting like from the director of pairing on a poster? That's really good. Um, uh, um, Kinsey and Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Don't you think? Yes. As a filmmaker, I go, oh, God, I got to see that Beauty and the Beast now from the director of Kinsey right. or, or, or Beauty and the Beast from the director of Candyman too. We were having that discussion when they they did the director card on the trailer. Somebody kind at the studio wanted to say visionary director, and of course, I wanted none of that. I think, I think that's oh, always so. You can vote on that. Well, you, you get to say no on yeah. something like that, and I immediately, I think everyone should say no to yeah. that. But then we're trying to think of, well, what could you say? It's, and I came up with, um, what was it, Once Promising, <laughs> the, um, or uh, yes, um, Still Young. I don't know. <laughs> Those things so are- whenever we do see from the visionary director, that means that that person signed off on it. There's a good chance. And often probably <laughs> and probably believes it. it. Yes. Got it. Fair and, enough. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because your... Um, uh, filmography is so expansive. I feel like you have uh, the, the right to weigh in on this. And at this point, it's been talked about to death. But but Martin Scorsese's comments on, on yeah. the Marvel. Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer that the quote was taken out of context and I am sort of snowballed. I agree. Um, does that worry you on your own end about making your own sort of comments that could then snowball into their own thing? And what did you think about the base of what he said? Because basically, he was asked about the de-aging process. Right. And then right. it snowballed into a whole right, thing. Right, right, right. No, I thought the basic thing was... It, it, I could be wrong about this, but he was talking about not about the movies that get made, but how the movies that get seen, you know? And the fact is there's always been a a big part of the movie business. There's been a place for Marvel movies, you know, and, and, you know, that this whole run started with X-Men movies. And before that it was diehard action movies. And before that it was, you know, there's always been spectacular uh, action as a, as a kind of, really popular genre in movies. I think all he's wondering about is when when did this thing happen? And I don't think any of us knows where it's landing, where it's going. But, you know, people say now there are only a handful of genres that are working in theaters. There's Marvel movies, there's music-driven movies, which is good for me. I like those movies. There are horror movies. And I, people say there's maybe one other genre, but it used to be that the whole range of dramas were were things that people wanted to see in a yeah. commu- communal way. I think I think all you're responding to is is um, um, why why uh, why can't there be space for more? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I love that his Irishman has taken over a Broadway theater right know, now, which I think right? is cool right here yeah. in town. Yeah. Um, I, one of the coolest things I think that can happen for an actor is whenever you have so much success early in your career that post that success, you can kind of do whatever you want, which I yeah. feel like is what Robert Pattinson is doing right now. Yes. Post Twilight, he can do stuff like Good Times and, 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 uh, and The Lighthouse, which I think is fascinating. Thoughts on his post-Twilight career and then his choice uh, to, to play Batman? Oh, I think it's all brilliant, including, including going back to the Batman. I think that's great because I think he's going to, he, had, he was so conflicted about it the first time it happened. He understood the opportunity that those movies gave him, but it was also frustrating, and he had no comfort with the idea of being some kind of, um, you know, um, heartthrob, you know. But I think now it, what's so exciting is, look, the Batman, uh, you know, as a, as a you know, um, 
superhero um, character has been interesting in movie after movie after movie, and I know he's going to do the same thing with it. But again, as you say, it comes on the heel, heels of, I mean, just right now, just this fall, you know, between the King and and the Lighthouse, it's it's really it's remarkable. I, I the thing I find exciting is that um, he he just seems to be getting better and better, and more than anything. Um, Committed, yes. you know. I think there was always a thing. There was always a diffidence about him, which was absolutely understandable in the context of Twilight and how conflicted he was. But boy, when you see what's happening in those recent movies, you know, it really that is somebody who's going for it and doing it in a um, a kind of ballsy, you know, you know, just jump off the high wire way, yeah. you know? Yeah, but it's but he's landing. He's landing yeah, well. Yeah. I want to shift gears for a second because I always find this fascinating. I wonder if you'll take me to the moment you won the Oscar. That is that is a moment that very, 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 very few people will ever experience. Right. When you hear your name called, right. physically, what happens to you? Um, yeah, it is it is fascinating. I was I was deep, deep, deep into the middle of an aisle at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which didn't have a central aisle, you know. So it, I watched the video this morning. It yeah. seemed like they kind of had you in the back yeah, they, of the room. They, and having produced it yeah. once, I, that's where I put all the people I thought well, were. The, thought, the, the, the part that I thought was interesting was that Ian McKellen stands up, and he's, like, looking where for are you. you. He's like, yeah, exactly. he's like where, where yeah. are you? Yeah. If you haven't seen the video, it's a great video to find. Yeah, the, um, yeah so I had to climb over a lot of people. Uh, a lot of <laughs> Excuse the me, I just won an Oscar. Climb over, an but Oscar. I had to climb over the, my competition, which was oh, because they were, like, so that was awkward, right, to start with. And then you, Ian McKellen told me one thing, which is just as soon as anything like that happens, you race onto the stunt, try to beat the petering out of the applause, you know? Um, and then I caught, I have to say the only reason I, only way I got through that was catching those three and they were hugging each other and they became my warm spot. Then thinking, boy, this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll, I'll take my glance across. This was, uh, you know, a four hour plus show. I, this award came three and a half hours into it and I had never seen just such a sea of, of like, Bored and hostile faces. They either, they either hated you for winning or they just were desperate to get out of there. So that was then suddenly I was, that was when I was insecure. It's like I've got to get off this. Well, you had two great, Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn. You had two great presenters. Oh, my which, God, I mean, you couldn't best. ask for better people. And she lived in, she bought the, she lived in James Will's house. And no there was kidding. this incredible connection, you know, to it, you know. Yeah. But I don't know if I, it, the, the, the great thing that happened right after though, because it is heady, you know, and you walk right in, back then they used to, take you, there would be, you know, Lionsgate, there was a publicist who took you, and there was this kind of wall of scouts from all of the television shows, late night TV and morning TV, and she, the the guy, the announcer said, okay, I have Bill Connor just won the Oscar, and you heard six people at once say, no, 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 thank you. So, like, there was this immediate, you immediately were brought back to earth. You're still yeah. a screenwriter. Like, and you don't even get, like, exactly. 90 seconds. No, no, it was... Well, Which was kind of perfect. Well, yeah. I kind of wanted to ask about that because Robin Williams tells, or told, told a great story about life after winning an Oscar. He said, you know, there, there's a moment where you kind of get to live it for a second. You're like, oh, congratulations. Right. And then he said it took about two days before someone said, hey, Mark. And then right, you're brought right, back. Exactly. Uh, so I was going to ask, like, how long until you're brought back to Earth? But for you, you'd say about 90 seconds. 90 seconds. 90 whole seconds. Yes. Okay, I want to ask um, a question that you don't have to answer if you don't want to. But there's sort of been this debate as to whether or not there's truth to this story. And I feel like you're right, the right person to ask. It involves the Oscars. The rumor that uh, after Eddie Murphy lost Best Supporting Actor for Dreamgirls, right. that he was upset and he got up and walked out. Is there, is there a truth to that? 
Um, yeah, there's some truth to that. It wasn't, it wasn't but what, what, let me say that again, okay? Okay. Uh, there's a kernel of truth to it, but the real story is that um, he lost the Oscar. He'd been expected to win the Oscar, and then they went right to commercial, and all these people who love him, Steven Spielberg came right up to him, um, Clint Eastwood came right up to him. Everyone surrounded him, and it was a lot of, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He got through the middle, and he realized, oh, my God, I have five hours of Because that was the first award of the night, wasn't it? No, but no. it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty soon. Yeah. And he thought, it's not just if I stay here, but for the rest of the night, any party I go to, it's five hours of people saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And he, it was that. It wasn't, it wasn't being pissed off because he didn't win. It wasn't a sore loser. I think he's a very sensitive guy, and, and he just, he, the prospect of, of uh, that sympathetic look from everybody he's ever met in his life as though his dog had just died, yeah. you know. Uh, I don't think he thought of it that way, and I, I thought it was understandable. Yeah, I think that's entirely understandable. Yeah. I want to wrap up my last few questions by shifting back to Good Liar. Um, you have to protect so many twists and turns in this film, and it's not the first time you've worked with twists. Everyone on this podcast is in awe of, uh, of the twists that you pulled off in Breaking Dawn. Yes, that was fun. Which right. freaked people out right. in theaters. Everyone on my podcast is like, you got to talk to him about that twist. <laughs> and I feel like it, it, it sort of sums up perfectly with this film. Yeah. Is it harder to protect a twist like that in these days? Because the second that people get out yeah. of the theater opening night, they can start tweeting about yeah, it, they yeah, can text yeah. the people. Is, is it, whenever you make a twist like that, do you have to account for the fact that it's 2019? It's funny you say that because that was twenty. That was twenty twelve, I right. believe, right? And those guys, you know, this is the fifth movie they'd done, and they they had been so unbelievably protective. Those scripts were impossible to get get your hands on. Um, nobody saw those movies. You know, when we would do test screenings, we knew the names and addresses and firstborn, you know, yeah. of every everyone who saw the film. So literally, I don't know whether there are movies that do that now. Uh, that are so, you know, but we were, maybe maybe it's impossible to do now, but 2012 wasn't the dark ages. There was still a lot that, that you know, a lot of chances for people to share stuff on social media, I think. Um, but I got to say, the um, because we're able to do that, at that premiere downtown, um, I have never heard a sound like that when, um, when Carlisle's head got, Chopped off. <laughs> and is, is there a, is there a sick amount of joy that you got oh, from, beyond, from that moment? <laughs> the, the sickest, absolutely, yeah. And then, and then just the real. Then when when they realized it was actually a vision, the kind of oh, the crying and the screaming. It, it was really. It was yeah. No, That's got to be the most satisfying thing. Thrilling, yeah. You got to experience something as a filmmaker that, that not a lot of or that not a lot of people do. So you wrote the greatest showman. I, I, I came in and did some writing. Right. Yeah. That is a film that, after opening weekend, people wrote off as a bomb. It did not do well. Absolutely. And then the next weekend, it ticked up and did a little bit yeah. more, and ticked up a little bit more after that, and then ended up being one of the most successful films that came out that year. Crazy. Did that change your perception of what an opening weekend means, or really what box office means, period? Because couldn't you argue time is the greatest factor of success? Yes, although I think people use that movie the way that uh, politicians use the Dewey defeats Truman headline. Everyone's always saying, "Oh yeah, we didn't work this weekend," but you look Don't at the greatest, yeah, showman, look the greatest right? showman, exactly. And in fact, it only—I think it only happens once every twenty years. I mean, it hasn't happened since. I'm right. not saying it won't happen again. It was—it is truly still such an incredible mystery that that happened that way. I think, you know, if you were to uh, examine, I think one thing was, frankly. 
maybe not a nice thing to say, but I think there were, there were people in the marketing department at Fox who did not believe in that movie and so sent the signal out in very many ways that it wasn't going to work. So um, I actually think it's a movie that had to overcome its own initial marketing, you know, yeah. um, or mistakes made in marketing in the beginning. Um, and then secondly, the thing I love about it, again, because uh, I do love music-driven movies and that genre, is that the I think the if there's one reason above all that that phenomenon has happened is that that score, those songs that those guys wrote, are it's just... On my phone. Right? They're beloved by people of all ages, and then you want to go and experience the emotion of the songs in context over and over again, and that's what we love about musical movies. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I I so rarely ask the question, so what are you going to do next? Because my thought is like, right. oh, you know, you're, you're, you're in the middle of this movie. Isn't sure, even sure. out. You're, you're in the middle. Yeah. But because your, fil your, your filmography is just so unbelievably fascinating to me because you're kind of all over the place. Right. I, I'm sort of curious. Whenever do you have any idea what the next film is or what the next genre? Yeah. Can I, can I ask what, what or in how you make that decision as to what the next angle is? I guess decision never because it's the next one that comes together, right? You're always... And uh, I've been lucky. They've been coming together. You know, right now we're sitting with, with a few movies that e e any one of which I'd be thrilled to make. But the one that looks like it's coming into focus is an original movie musical that I've written uh, with Stephen Schwartz doing the score, uh, which I'm very excited about, called Marley. And it's a, it's a kind of um, new version of, uh, it's kind of the prequel and sequel to A Christmas Carol that... Uh, Charles Dickens ever wrote. Marley is is Scrooge's partner right. in that book, in that story. And we we tell the story through his eyes. It is, uh, you know, a new version of the story that then very occasionally intersects with what we know. That's amazing. See, I, I love that angle. I was really hoping with... Um you know, with, with, with Aladdin and, and, right. and Lion King, I was really hoping that we would get those stories from, like, Jafar's perspective. Right, Scar right, And yeah. that's exactly what I, do you guys have any kind of a, a cast lined up? How far into the process? We're just about to go out to a few people. Yeah. Well, I was in my high school musical. Oh, really? Uh, I was, a, I was um, a bird number three. It's oh musical. So if you need somebody, really? if you need somebody. Well, the Eric Trump musical, right? Don't you, don't say that, Bill. <laughs> Where this, uh, Eric Trump jokes were made when, uh, when, when Bill came in the room because uh, I, apparently I look like Eric Trump. <laughs> Bill Condon. <laughs> a handsome version of it. Thank you yeah, so much. Good. I appreciate it. Thank you so much okay. for coming on Real Blend. This good. has been a great pleasure. Congratulations on the great. good liar, man. Thank Anytime you. you want to come on, thank you so much. Appreciate That's it. great. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for a great conversation, oh, man. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. You made it easy. Oh, my God. Usually I'm hemming and hawing, but that was really, that was fun. Thank you so much. Naturally, every time we come out of one of these interviews, we thank the studio that helped us set it up. And this time it was Warner Brothers on behalf of The Good Liar. Uh, we will talk about that film a little bit later on in our This Week in Movies. And while we're on the Warner Brother topic, let's get to Dr. Sleep, um, a film that opened last week that we, all three of us, uh, celebrated and told you guys that you needed to go out and see it. And not a lot of people, you listen to us because the movie did not do nearly as well as I thought it was going to do. Uh, it opened to 14 Point one million at the box office. It ended up losing the number one slot or not attaining the number one slot and losing to Midway. Um, things that I am very surprised about. I know that we get a, a sequel. You know, some people almost made the comparison to Blade Runner 2049, where it's a sequel to a movie that has been a long time coming, 
Maybe they didn't do a good enough job of connecting it to The Shining uh, or of establishing that it's a full-on sequel, but to me, it underperformed. What do you guys think about the number? What do you think happened to Dr. Sleep when it when it hit the, the box office and hit the theaters this weekend? I personally think the re- the biggest reason why it didn't do well is because uh, we didn't have Mike Flanagan on the Real Bun podcast. I, I just wonder if like, maybe that was... No, I'm just kidding. Very fair. Uh, no, I, I'm joking. <laughs> no, but honestly, though, uh, all kidding aside, I mean, it is it is... It's a movie that I noticed that when I pitched it to people or talked about it, they were like, what's Dr. Sleep? Like, not nobody really knew what it was. And I think um, the name. Yeah, I understand it's Stephen King's uh, novel name. I totally get that. Uh, But I, I think my I think the connecting idea to The Shining was. An interesting way. They, they really did lean into it. Stephen King was all over Twitter about it. The marketing had shining shots in it. The original teaser had three original uh, four shots, I, I guess, or something that were recreated and or actual footage. I think the, the elevator scene was an actual footage from the from the uh, shining movie. So I think when it comes down to it, it, it really was a movie that I just don't think connected with audiences just based on its title and its marketing. And I think really what it comes down to, it's like kind of sad to me. But to your point, uh, you know, I, I feel like Warner Brothers was a bit between a rock and a hard place because, yes, there were quite a few people who would hear the, the name Dr. Sleep and they go like, what what the hell is that? Like, what, what is a Dr. Sleep? And uh, But on the flip side of that, when I would explain to people, oh, it's a sequel to The Shining, I also found that there was a large group of people that would go, why does there need to be a yeah. sequel to The Shining? Like, it's, it's really a movie – that justifies its existence once you see it. It's a movie that I didn't realize how much I needed until I saw it. But you can't really put that on a poster. So, you know, I, I, I really think it's split between either people didn't get that it was a Shining sequel or the people that did get the, that it was a Shining sequel didn't understand why there needed to be a Shining sequel in the first place. So is that a also, marketing is that a marketing problem? I think they marketed it very well. Every TV spot, every poster, every trailer I thought was great. That's the but, weird part. I mean, did, did The Shining do that well? Is it Because keep in mind, one thing people pointed out when Blade Runner 2049 failed was that the Blade Runner wasn't that big of a hit when it came out. It wasn't until it sort of gained a, a hit status uh, on on uh, on VHS years down the road. It took years. Um, so maybe, it, 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 are we overestimating how much of a hit The Shining well, was in theaters? It's I not think that the, whether it was a hit in theaters, it's it's a pop, I mean, it's a, a widely beloved movie now, yeah. you know? But I just, I kind of think the concept of a sequel to The Shining is, is hard to sell in this instance. If you say this is a sequel to fill in the blank, you immediately want to connect the dots to the existing people in that movie. And they're like, oh, cool. So Nicholson's in it somehow. You know, is Jack Torrance in it? Well, no, it's the kid from the movie, but he's much older now. Oh, cool. Is he in the Overlook Hotel? Not exactly. Like, there's another girl who has the same kind of power. Oh, cool. They're in Colorado? Mm, No, they're in New Hampshire, and then they're eventually going to get to... uh, But there's a group called the True Knot. Oh, great. What do the True Knot do? Are they part of The Shining? Well, they're not part of The Shining, but they are vampires that eat steam. Like, it's a lot of connections you have to make. I just thought the name Stephen King would get people engaged because, you know, Jake, you're super into Castle Rock right now, the show. And oh my God, it's so good two, this season. The two It movies are ginormous, so I just kind of thought... You yeah, know, but also keep in mind, Pet Cemetery didn't do well, yeah. and that's one of his more recognizable titles. Well, what I find interesting about it is, like, and I, and to to hearing both of your points, now I'm kind of like coming to a, a different conclusion. Like, like you're right, because the marketing was out there everywhere. There were trailers out there, the 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 poster was incredible. It, like it really leaned into the shining aspect of it. As I mentioned, the trailers. It's what is it? Is it is it the connection? Is it something that just didn't connect with people? Like what does Doctor Sleep mean? Right. Like right. you know, I, 
I don't know. It's hard because I feel like Warner Brothers did do a ton of marketing for the movie. So um, isn't that, I'm so frustrated for them as a, like stu- as a studio, you know, because I know there are a lot of times when they feel like they really put the work in, you know, not Warner Brothers specifically, but studios in general. And then they, you kind of just turn it over to the audience and you really do hope. And we hear this a lot from, from different reps, you know. They, sometimes they just don't know, you know, and, and something could come back as a huge hit. Like, I, I don't think Warner Brothers really believed Joker was going to cross a billion dollars, right? No. And that's one that they put out there and it overperformed. And then sometimes they put a lot of effort into something like Dr. Sleep and then it underperforms and they can't figure it out. It's like trying to trying to read the audience and not being able to do that successfully. And, so. and we all love the movie, too, because yeah. it's one of my top 10 favorite movies of the year. So seeing the box office num- numbers for it. Where I have a new number one, by the way, but we can get into that later. Um, but uh, but I but I it's I T2. genuinely I have, I have a number, new number one and a new number two. Um, but with this movie, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was incredibly well shot, incredibly well directed. I think everybody should go see Doctor Sleep. Um, do yourself a favor, go out and see it. Support this type of filmmaking. This yeah. is very awesome very well cared for storytelling in my opinion. Absolutely. I agree. Um, all right. I want to shift gears to um, explain what's happening on my Twitter feed. Uh, the boys kind of know this and I'm still going to sort of dance around a couple of things. Um, but I've been tracking uh, something that's happening this week and it's building towards something on Sunday. And I want to kind of put it on people's radars. Uh, if you've been on Sunday thing. Yeah. The Sunday thing's pretty exciting. So I've been, I've been really active in the release the Snyder cut uh, community. And it's something that I've sort of fallen into in the past six months, maybe a year, give or take. Um, I've been aware of it, but not quite up to speed with everything that they're trying to do. So these are people who are online and use the hashtag release the Snyder Cut. And they are trying to get the director's version of the Justice League movie uh, released somehow uh, in theaters, on DVD. They would like to maybe go to HBO Max. And it's the version that they um, believe that Zack Snyder has of the abomination that was the 2017 um, release that Joss Whedon essentially took over for him when he stepped away when his uh, daughter committed suicide. And so that was the the reason that Zack gave for wanting to, to step away from Justice League. Well, they let Whedon finish it. It didn't turn out well, as we all know. Um, and Zack had the ability to very quietly, you know, just say to the people who are lobbying hard online to see the version that they thought he wanted to, to release to say, Hey guys, you know, there is no Snyder cut version of justice league. Like I didn't finish it. Uh, it wouldn't have been that different. He could, he could give a million different answers that would, that would slow their role and essentially say to them, stop, stop pushing. You know, this is crazy. Let it go. It's time for all of us to move on. Um, but he does the exact opposite. He instead repeatedly gets on social media and uses this Vero tool um, that is largely just him and his supporters and will keep sharing like images from scenes uh, that show things that he would have included. And it, it as people have been putting them all together, it feels like a more promising thing. So Sunday is November 17th. Uh, it's the two year anniversary of the uh, release of the theatrical cut. The, the the Joss Whedon version came out November 17th of 2017. So this entire week, uh, the people who are organizing the release of Snyder Cut movement have picked out um, a different member of the league every single day. And they're doing concentrated efforts on social media to just blast the hashtag as much as possible to get Warner Brothers involvement. And today, the day we're recording, which is, what day is today? Tuesday? The 12th. Yeah, Tuesday the 12th. 
it's Flash Day, Ezra Miller, Flash Appreciation. And Zach starts sharing things on social media. He puts a, a shot of Ezra Miller um, as the Flash awesome. traveling through time. Um, he shares Dude, the Aquaman photo. Steppenwolf shot was awesome. Yeah, Momoa did this. That shot was amazing. I was geeking out when I saw that. <laughs> so... The, 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 the prevalent thing is that, like, initially it was always like, this doesn't exist. You know, stop asking for it. The cut doesn't exist. You guys are, are cult fanatics for even believing that it is. And this is before I even joined the movement. Now there's so much evidence that it actually does exist that as a journalist, I'm just so curious about, like, the existence of it. Like, what could it look like? How finished it? So Josh Horowitz, who we're all friends with, the three of us are friends with, they interview, he interviews Momoa for MTV for his new Apple TV show, C. And in the process, he uh, gets him to talk about the Snyder Cut. And Momoa says, yeah, I saw it. I saw it recently. And uh, it's amazing. And Josh, uh, Josh Horowitz is like, yeah, but what does that mean? You mean it's like it's a bunch of uh, unfinished scenes, you know, just his assemblage of it. And, and Momoa says, well, what makes you think that he didn't finish it in the two years that we've been sitting around here? You know, like he essentially and and like that's what I believe. I believe that Snyder would do take the time. It's his movie to tinker away at it, you know, and have it ready in a in Would a he have format. access to it, though? I yeah, mean, like, isn't that Warner Brothers legally? property? I think he does. I mean, I think he has the footage. Yeah, the assembled footage. He probably, like, imagine what you do with any of your stuff that you get from a junket. You probably drag it onto, you know, we're saying in the smallest form. You drag that footage onto your uh, computer because you're going to tinker with it. You're going to work with it, right? So other versions has, of course, gone over to the studio, but wouldn't he have that raw footage? I wouldn't think. I feel like all too often you hear about studios, like, locking out, directors from their films like I, right. I feel like they're just not going to let a, even if it is Zack Snyder I can't imagine they're just going to let him walk around with Justice League footage on his <laughs> personal computer now, I, find, I find that hard to believe I think he might <clears throat> and then one other point that I want to bring up about this movement um, is that it's so much more than just a movie and this is kind of what I learned about this too like Obviously, Zach and his wife, Debbie, who's his producer, went through a, a huge family tragedy uh, when they lost their daughter. And this is part of the reason why he walked away from Justice League in the first place and they let Joss Whedon finish it for him. <clears throat> so everything that these guys have been doing uh, to raise awareness, not just for this cut of the movie, but to, to get it released, they also um, are raising funds and awareness for the um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And they have reportedly, uh, according to the numbers that they have put out there, have raised over $100,000 for it, which to me is mind-blowing. Like, I just think that that's so great. It's not just this, awesome. uh, you know, we think we're entitled to this as fans. Like, that. that's a little bit superficial uh, if that was your only reason. But the fact that they go above and beyond to raise awareness for a cause that's really important to the Snyders, that's part of the reason why I wanted to get involved in this movement. And so I just wanted to bring this up. Because, A, they're pushing towards this really big event on Sunday, and they claim to have um, some really cool giveaways that they want to do on Sunday for people who help them use the the hashtag, release the Snyder Cut, um, hash, hashtag, <laughs> hashtag, on social media on Sunday. Um, and then in addition, like, if you're looking at my Twitter feed and just thinking, like, what the hell is wrong with Sean? Like, why is he doing this this whole week? It's it's calculated, and there's a reason, and, uh, and um, hopefully... Uh, People at Warner Brothers are, are paying attention. Sean, if you were told that you had to admit uh, for real on 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 air and social media that the tornado scene in Man of Steel is a masterpiece in order for the Snyder <laughs> Cut to be released, <laughs> would you do it? 
Yeah, I would, I would admit that it is. <laughs> yes. If it, it is meant, an amazing scene. If it meant that we were getting to that, then uh, yeah, I would, I would say that it's an amazing the scene. The Snyder Cut actually is just that scene for two hours. <laughs> that, that's the entire Snyder Cut. And credits. <laughs> that's it, literally. <laughs> no, but you know what? I, there is a, a scene with um, Kevin Costner in the Snyder Cut that didn't make it into the theatrical. Um, that is apparently supposed to be closure for his journey with his father because there is a scene in BVS in the director's cut um, of him on the mountaintop where he gets to revisit his father. And apparently in the scene in the theatrical cut, if you remember this, Kevin, I'm not sure if you've seen it in a while. After Superman is uh, resurrected, he meets Lois Lane in the cornfield. Before they reunite in the cornfield, he's supposed to meet um, Jonathan Kent and have one more scene with Costner. That would be amazing, and, and and any and one reason for the Snyder Cut to be released. But I, what I would love to is everybody should watch BVS R rated uh, Ultimate Edition. Yeah, that is truly Snyder's cut of the movie, and it's much better than the theatrical. They actually, it actually even gives Eisenberg's performance even more depth. So uh, that makes me even way more excited that a Snyder Cut would even exist. Huge part of the reason why I believe yeah. that if we get a director's cut of Justice League, it's going to improve on it because of just yeah. the way the BVS was made a better movie, a different movie, and a better movie. Yeah. Once we got to see more footage from him and, and get a sense of what he was trying to do. So, all right, um, we will not be able to see the Snyder Cut anytime soon, but soon enough you will be able to see Martin Scorsese's film The Irishman, which is making its way to theaters. Um, uh, certain theaters, it's going to be on Netflix when? The end of November? It's finally 27th of November is when it hits the streaming service, um, but it's platform releasing, as we mentioned earlier in the beginning of the show. Uh, certain cities are getting it as a platform. So uh, 27th is, I believe, the stream date. All right. So this is going to be our spoiler-free review section for the Irishman. Um, I don't think I have much to say because I told y'all last week on the episode that the Irishman knocked Avengers Endgame out as the best movie I've seen this year. And seeing as how, when I was able to get on the uh, Disney plus app, the first thing I watched was Endgame. Um, it goes to show you how much don't I you own it. Scorsese's film. Yeah. But just the ability to be able to yeah, like stream pl- hit right onto it and jump to the uh, scenes that I want to see and, Cry. I watched Infinity War a lot more on Netflix than I ever did on my Blu-ray. Sure. No, because, I, it, because it was right there. Like when, yeah. when Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was on Netflix, I would watch it once a week. That's fair. That's I fair. mean, it's so easy just to click okay. on it, you know? I have, a, I have a small confession. I've paid to like rent and stream a movie that I own on no, DVD. Just to keep, that's ridiculous. Just to keep no, myself from like, like no. if it's like, like $1.99, and it keeps me from having to like go get it off my shelf. Oh my god, dude! That is ridiculous. <laughs> That's pathetic. What a ridiculous thing. I, okay, fine. I, I, I guess this isn't a safe space to just tell all our friends things. Jake, to Jake's point, I'll, 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 I will also equally uh, admit to something that is not as not as bad as Jake's, but it's equally kind of there. Um, Lauren and I will be home on a Friday night, and we have I don't know. Seven, eight hundred or thousand Blu-rays downstairs. Yeah. And we can never figure out anything to watch. It's all right there. So yeah. we always end up paying to rent something that, that we don't have. It's always uh. we always want to watch something that we don't have. Now, right. if it was in my collection, I would get off my butt and go downstairs and get it. No question. Jake, I think it's funny though. We we, we do something similar. I don't sometimes. even have to go downstairs. You guys have seen my place. It's like I know. Th- it's, it's like yeah. ten feet from my TV. Just when, have when Daenerys you... train to get it for you. <laughs> Just have her go pick up the DVD off your shelf and bring it over. That, that, I'm working on trying to get her to get beers out of the fridge. That's, when that's your very close one. friend is trying to tell you he makes far more money than you do, <laughs> he, he tells that, you the story of renting movies that he has on his shelf. 
<laughs> you know what? That was the subtlety of that of that comment. That I make to... so much money. I don't even know what to do Jake with it. Jake just texted us our, his salary and said, get it. Or something like that. <laughs> What's going on? All right. Uh, Jake, you get to go. Because I know that the Irishman has climbed uh, up your ranks. And you said to me that the more you thought about it, uh, the more you've really come around on it. Where are you in terms of the Irishman right now? How about a star uh, lo- rating? Give me a star rating out of five. Oh, five out of five, without question. Wow. Okay. Um, it's a movie that I think I needed to take a second because it was different than what I thought it was going to be. Okay. Um, I really walked in thinking it was going to be Goodfellas, which I don't think unfairly so, because I would say the trailer lends itself to a Goodfellas. Yeah, sure. And I think I've said in, in a past show that it's Goodfellas directed by the man who made Silence. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it is about a mafia, and it is there. there is a sort of a mobster and a godfather element to it, um, but it's a much more reflective, who am I, what have I done, what are the consequences of my actions? Uh, you know, when I think of Casino, I think of like the bright suits and the, and, the, and the flashing lights and the glitz and the glamour of Vegas. When I think of uh, Goodfellas, I think of them slicing the garlic while in jail and like jail not even being that bad. <laughs> and then when I think of Irishmen, I think of a, not to get into spoilers, I think of a mobster who has done horrible things with his life, mm-hmm. who pauses and goes like what the hell have i done mm. and that is so soul as as much fun as the other ones are i mean that cuts into my soul man yeah. that that breaks my heart in a way that no other scorsese movie has especially when dealing with with the topic of mafia which he does so well it's 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 on a different level man it's just it's you know it it's that movie and everything else. Well, and before I get to Kevin, I want to point out to part of the reason why Kevin was arguing that, that the film should be seen in a theater. It's one of those films where unless you sit with it in one sitting, mm. the feelings that he wants you to feel at the end of the movie are not going to resonate as strongly as if you're at home and you're watching it in segments. Because that, that people keep telling me that, well, it's so long. I, that one of the reasons I want to watch it on Netflix is so I can like pause. And I'm like, this movie wasn't made to be paused and to no. go pee in the middle of. And like, yeah, no. if you got to, you got to. And if it's going to ruin the movie for you, if you don't, whatever. But I'm sorry, like that's, if, if you can sit, if you can sit on a plane ride for three and a half hours yeah. and not have to pee, which you should be able to, uh, <laughs> you, you should be able to sit through the Irishman for three and a half hours and not have to get up and, and, and interrupt it. And there were moments during my theatrical screening of it where I actually did have to go to the bathroom. And and I knew, like, sort of projecting of what might happen with the characters. I was like, well, I don't want to miss that. Or I don't I don't want to come back in and have something really important have happened. So I so I waited. Kevin, I don't know if you if you remember this in our we were at the premiere uh, in Hollywood, a, a packed theater. Literally every seat was filled. I counted only three people got yeah. up in three and a half hours, which I thought I, was very impressive. I don't remember anyone getting up. I mean, the last time I remember seeing someone get up during a movie was when I saw Lighthouse and the person got up like at the never came back, never came back. But they but they got up after all the crazy stuff happened. They got up on a random scene where like where uh, I won't get into it, but it was very weird. I was like, why are you getting up now? You just just watched all of that stuff. That old man who got up during Good Boys and yelled at you guys. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is (laughs) diabolical. That was that was was amazing. And he was an hour and a half into the movie. You already saw all of the crazy stuff. Like I I wanted I honestly wanted to get up during the lighthouse and go out of the theater. I hadn't seen the movie yet and go ask the lady. What was your breaking point? Because you just <laughs> sat through everything imaginable, and you yeah. you walked out when he walks out of the house with 
on a dog leash. That was yeah. the scene that put it over that the top. That was it? That was the scene that she walked out on. I'm like, why? That scene. Oh, I, I'm only going to tell this on the podcast real fast because I, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to it. Um, you guys have seen The Lighthouse now. I've seen The Lighthouse now. Uh, it's an amazing, uh, an amazing, strange experience that I don't know that I love, but I admire it. Uh, I told you guys this in the text chain. This is funny to me. It's just a follow-up to something Sean asked um, Dave, uh, Robert Eggers about the farts in the, in the, in the, in the movie. And it is, it is a big part of the movie in regards to them being isolated. Um, so I interviewed Defoe, Willem Defoe the other day for a Disney plus movie. And I talked about lighthouse in the, in the interview. And then I stood up and I felt like the interview went well enough that I could turn around and say, Mr. Defoe, respectfully, those <laughs> sounds, were they coming from you or <laughs> were they added in later? And he laughed and went, I'm a vegetarian. So some of them were really there and some of them were added later. I, was, I, I just thought that was like such a great answer. And like I felt his publicists were probably like, what is wrong with this kid? But I mean, whatever. But anyways, Irishman, not to go too far off track. Irishman was a, it was an experience. I've always loved Martin Scorsese. He's, I, don't, I wouldn't call him one of my favorite filmmakers in my top three um, of all time, but he's one of the greatest directors of all time. And I, and I, Love Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. I truly fell in love with Scorsese after Hugo. Hugo was the movie that changed everything for me because it was a movie that spoke to the way I felt about filmmaking and love of filmmaking. Um, so this guy that's working now, this filmmaker, this director, it, this is this is the best part of his career, in my opinion. Um, these films that he's doing now, Hugo and then The Irishman, they're so reflective about family and age um, and, and, and dying um, and what we leave behind legacy-wise. Uh, there's a lot of themes that, in my opinion, crossed from Hugo to here. Um, just the idea of, like, I think you can watch Hugo and Irishman and have never met somebody in the mob or never met a filmmaker and understand and relate what those people are going through on a human level. Um, and that's, I think, what Irishman does so well is it takes these these uh, these glamorized gangsters that we've seen in so many movies, so many years, and it puts them in a reality check. It puts them in a moment of, oh, my God, like Jake said, was this all worth it? And there's something specifically devastating about the way De Niro performs in this film. It's not flashy. It's all in his eyes. And there's something about sitting with him for those three and a half hours. Everything in the beginning, in the middle, things that you may think are dragging are important. Every single frame is important. Um, there is even I, I will say this without spoiling anything. Even doors are important. Like they're, they're, everything in this movie has importance. And I say that because like you may get up and go, oh, I can go to the bathroom here. They're just talking or whatever. I'm telling you right now, the third act of this film is so devastatingly brutal on an emotional level that you need the first two acts in order for that third act to work. And, and I don't you don't think, need to be a mobster to relate exactly. to some of the emotions. It, I, it makes it makes me, I'm not a freaking mobster, but it makes me look at my life differently where oh. you sort of look back and go, yeah. damn. I, I honestly left the theater and I said to myself, what is Scorsese thinking about his life? Does Is he going back through it and going, maybe I shouldn't have done Cundon, uh, maybe that took too much time away from my family. Did I shoot too long casino? Was I there for my kid? I mean, again, these are all things that I'm projecting onto him. But I'm wondering, because of the relationship that De Niro's character has with Anna Paquin, and I want to say something. This makes me so 
mad. Uh, I saw this the other day, and this is something similar to what happened with Tarantino and Margot Robbie and the lack of dialogue that Margot Robbie's character supposedly had in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though her character was important and amazing and did everything amazing with her face. Um, Anna Paquin has very minimal dialogue in this film. But to me, she's the heart of the entire film. She is the reflection of everything that is going on with De Niro's character. This is not a spoiler. And Pacino's. Right. So my point is, don't buy into any of these storylines. Anna Paquin's performance in that film, while she doesn't speak a lot, is the centerpiece of the entire arc of the movie. I mean, and I don't know if Sean agrees with me. I think she's so pivotal to the way we perceive these characters and the way they perceive themselves. And this film was much deeper than I expected. I think Jake makes a good point about going into it thinking you're going to see Goodfellas. This is a different filmmaker that made Goodfellas. This is a different filmmaker who made The Departed. Um, And I think this mature Scorsese is reflecting a lot on his life and filmmaking and legacy and love and family. Um, And it's truly a remarkable achievement. My only complaint about the movie is that I think some of the de-aging isn't quite there yet. Um, But that's only in a certain specific scenes. And I feel like some of their body movements did feel like 75-year-olds versus 39-year-olds. But... That being said, those are all very minimal, minuscule things. Every movie has flaw, um, except for maybe Terminator 2 and Pulp Fiction. But every movie generally does have a flaw. And I think that uh, – no, I did not reveal my 90s pick. Uh, but I do – I do – I do <laughs> I was pointing feel, at Kevin. I do feel that people should see Irishman in theaters if you can. Um, and if you're sitting there in the second act and you go, man, this is dragging a little bit, trust me, the payoff, the third act is insane. And Pesci well, – is so good. Everybody's great in the movie. I want to point out too, that I find these movies. um, And for that, I'll say Goodfellas Casino and this more terrifying than most, if not all horror films, because marriage story is the scariest movie I've seen this year. It's not even a horror film. Right. That's it's because it's real. Well, it's real, but also the threat of violence of unexpected violence from the, from the characters in the movies that Scorsese um, yes. Pr- presents is, is it's so unpredictable yeah. because like the scariest scenes to me are when you're having a conversation with somebody and they turn the conversation on you and you didn't know that they were about to turn it. Right. Um, like, th- of course, you know, like I'm funny to you. How, you know, like uh, I think I'm funny, like a clown, like that the Pesci in Goodfellas is the most scary thing because nobody thinks that he's about to get angry and then he starts getting angry. Yeah. You're, and, 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 and even when he doesn't like inflect anger, it's on his face. Like it, 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 you're right though. Like there's like scenes where Pesci is talking to somebody and yeah. the fear of God is being put in that other person just based on the way he's delivering his dialogue. Well, and what about Billy Bats? You know, like when he's confronting Pesci and they're yeah. sort of like needling oh. each other, you know, to the point where like, right until he says it, you know, oh, go get your fucking shine box. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is going to implode. And just you, you're on. Un- I'm uncomfortable in those moments. I sat next to. So we did this amazing BFCA thing, which we've discussed already on the show, where we went to a, a press conference with Martin Scorsese and, and De Niro and Pacino. And the gentleman next to me, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but I want to give him credit because he was Jake. He had, it was Jake. Hamilton. Well, Jake was in front of me, but there was a guy. I think his name was Tim and he was next to me and he brought up on, on that. And this made this actually blew my mind. There's a scene in Irishman. Um, all I will say about it is the dialogue is, is it is what it is. That That's a yeah. very, uh, yeah. very big scene in the movie. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. reminded me of the tension I felt in Heat with De Niro and Pacino 
And Tim was the one, the gentleman next to me was the one who made that comparison. Because I remember watching that scene in Irishman. I'm like, why does this feel so amazing and familiar? And he goes, and he goes, that's why. Because it reminded me of that duet, that, that, that conversation that those two had. So if this is a tease at all for anybody wanting to see the Irishman, there is a scene in this film that is at that level of heat. I wouldn't say it's as good, but it's, it's, it's close. It's there. It's Kevin, an amazing scene. Kevin, you scene. say you have a new one and two. Is this one of them? No. Ah, this this is the uh, number five. This don't is number, reveal, uh, six. Don't reveal your six. one and twos. Yeah, I don't my, know your one and twos. Here's what I'll say as a tease. My number one became my number one on a plane ride I took home on Saturday when I viewed the film for a fourth time. Um, the no, number I two. I be, think I know what it is. The number two became my number two uh, because of a different situation. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I, like I just want to say All one right. quick thing before we move on from Irishman. I, I, I don't mean to sound like. <laughs> pretentious but but uh and be like oh you got to read the book but i'm reading the book right now um i heard you paint houses um and it's heard you paint houses well i heard you paint houses a majority i'd probably 85 percent of the book is direct quotes from the interviews that that the author did with frank sheeran and it pretty much follows the 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 plot of the irishman but there's it's it's like getting an audio commentary from frank sheeran so that's cool if you get the chance Watch The Irishman and then read the book because it's like watching The Irishman and then having Frank lean over and give you like behind the scenes stories yeah. on a lot of the scenes. It's it's Ugh. absolutely incredible. And speaking um, of the book, by the way, this is actually interesting. When you watch the film, pay attention to what the title card is at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Watch what they so. watch what they call the film at the beginning of the film. There's, the title card is not The Irishman. To That's a meeting? All. Huh? You wear that to a, you wear that to a meeting. Like, I just think of Pacino. And then Pacino like, is so good. And, Everybody's and good. you're late. And you're late. And you're late. Yeah. You come ten minutes late. You're sending a message. <laughs> I, I accounted for traffic. Ten minutes. All right. Uh, we're moving on to Doctor Sleep spoiler reviews. But do we want to really spoiler review? Or do we want to hear about Gabe's trip to the Overlook? I I feel like we've spoken pretty extensively yeah. about Doctor Sleep. I want I to hear about so. Gabe. We experience. all love Doctor Sleep, and Gabe has Gabe took this trip, and I'm going to let him explain this. But Gabe has been holding on to whatever he's about to say Ooh. for. Can I, can I tell one story that sets up Gabe? Yeah, sure. But, but, yeah, but, why so, do you do that? Yeah. No. Oh, so so uh, I got to see out of everybody. I got to see Doctor Sleep first because I did the Colorado experience and. Uh, I, whenever I watched the movie, I think I texted you guys after like watching that movie more so than any movie in a while made me want to go on the set. And I think I texted that to the group and then Gabe texted me individually. He's like, dude, you do remember that I went on the set, right? And I went, oh my God, I completely forgot that he actually got to go on the set. It's like, I'm, I cannot wait to hear his stories. Yeah. And Flanagan's amazing. So this is something we've been waiting to hear for a long time. I don't even know what he's going to say. So. Go ahead. So come Gabe. on, Gabe. Stop stalling. Get on. Turn your microphone on and let's go. I don't get like a sweet introduction, oh, like a what? like a wrestler. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? Wait, wait. So Sean, um, <laughs> yes. reset your introduction to the show real quick, and uh, and then so we've already introduced Introduce Jake Gabe. and Kevin. All right. So who else? Are you, who, uh, what, else, what other illustrious person are you joined by? Hello, yeah. Blunders, and welcome, oh, welcome to episode number ninety-two of Real Blend, a podcast that is now joined by Gabe. To talk oh, about wow. Hell yeah. There you go. What's up, guys? What's up, man? How are you? Thanks. That's my long-time now- listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> so first time, tell long us, time. 
I want to mention that uh, the reason Gabe got to go to this set visit was because they sprung it on us uh, at the very last minute. It literally mm-hmm. was like an invitation on a Wednesday. Can you be in, in Atlanta on a Friday? And um, we scrambled around to try to find somebody who knew The Shining and would be able to go down. Gabe, this was your first set visit or only my set first. visit? First and only? Uh, I've, I've only been to two. This is this is the first, though. Okay, and so you uh, travel down to Atlanta. When you go on a set visit, I think we've talked about these before, that you go down with a bunch of other journalists. You're normally um, under embargo for a very long time because usually you're going down about a a year and a half to a year to a year and a half before the movie even comes out because they're just in production and they're shooting all this stuff. And we have to sit on all of these details. But Gabe uh, texted me from it to tell me that he was, none of us knew this. Like we knew he was going down to Dr. Sleep and we knew it was a shining experience. But at the time we had no clue how much of the shining Flanagan was going to be pulling into. Uh, so when Gabe texted and he's like, I'm standing in the overlook right now. Mm. I was so mad that I sent him. (laughs) I told you that too. I said, I said, so uh, to set it up, kind of, we're driving there. So the way they do it is you're at a hotel and then they come in and they pick you up in a shuttle. And so it's me and it was really only like six or seven other people uh, that got to go on this. It, it, really cool, really exclusive thing. Um, and everyone's kind of talking about Flanagan stuff, chatting about, you know, Stephen King stuff. And then the driver. And so the the, the, the shuttle driver is actually someone who's employed on this set and is, is there throughout the typically throughout the shoot of of the movie. And she says something like, "Oh, are you guys gonna see the? Uh, are you guys gonna see the hotel? I heard they, they they built like a really cool hotel." And we were like, "We hadn't heard anything." And we were like, well, "Everyone went quiet." And immediately, Did you say everyone spoiler else alert went and run away. <laughs> no, no. She the way she said it, it wasn't. It was vague enough that we didn't know it was the hotel. It just sounded like a hotel. She didn't quite say it, but everyone. All these film journalists that I'm with just went extremely quiet and started asking very specific questions because <laughs> we're trying to figure out what what is she talking about. So the anticipa- anticipation was set, and I immediately I think I was texting Sean the whole time like this is insane, this is what's happening. That's cool. And you as we get other there, you do a podcast. With yeah, thanks for time. texting us, yeah, man. That's no, don't worry about. Well, it, it was cool. uh, to hey, be Gabe, honest. When, when, Gabe, when they gave you your embargo, um, did they say yeah. you have to wait a certain number of Doctor Sleeps before you rec- uh, release it? <laughs> Specifically, Jesus. specifically, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this so this is what one, it feels like, Gabe. Congratulations. This is what it feels like. <laughs> hey, Gabe, you wrap it up, please. Yeah, go ahead. We gotta move yeah, on. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm, so I got to go. It was great. Uh, this happened back in August of last year, by the way, just to give people an idea of how, uh, I think, I don't know, was it August or, I forget how long ago. Well, it was. I wouldn't I know if you didn't text me, but yeah. How <laughs> close was it in relation to Ready Player One? Uh, yeah, actually, you know what? I think it was pretty close to that being released. It was like and a that was March. that. Oh, maybe it was in the spring. Uh, I should have I should have looked that up. I don't remember. It was a long time ago, though. Uh, anyway, so we get there, and it's just a big studio lot. So it's basically a bunch of warehouses where they have sets and stuff built, and they're very particular about where they take you and where they don't take you. Um, and typically, you get to watch them shoot a scene. Um, again, this was the first one I had been on, but I had asked Sean a bunch of questions about expectations and that stuff, and that's typically what you get is you get to like see a scene, you answer questions, do interviews, and you know sometimes they show you artwork and stuff. I think we've explained that before on the show. And they sit us down with some headphones, and we're watching coverage of a scene that didn't even make the movie, and it's not even a scene that is exciting that it didn't make the movie and would be news. It's just a scene of the mother and the young girl having a conversation before she goes to bed in reaction to that. Kylie's character. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the younger one, the younger girl, actually. I forget her name. But uh, uh, so uh, so we're watching the scene, and it's just coverage of someone talking to another person, flip coverage. So, and we're like, this is this is why they flew us out here last minute? Like, this is like this is not 
that exciting. Were you at Pinewood? Um, was it the Pinewood Studios? It wasn't Pinewood. I was really hoping it would be. I, I forget the name of it, but it was okay. it was not Pinewood. That would have been. Was it Tyler Perry Studios? <laughs> it was actually it actually it was that was the surprise it was a Tyler Perry movie we got to see a Tyler Perry movie so I want to see Tyler Perry comes out of the, the overlook at the end I, I would pay so much money to watch Tyler Perry as a shiny it movie. would make more money here's Medea here's Medea <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say that it's so funny oh my oh, god that's good I actually that would pay good. to see that movie I think we all would so you yeah. meet Flanagan right doesn't Flanagan come around well, so here's where it gets really fun. They go, okay, Did let's go start Rebecca to do Ferguson? some interviews. Did you meet Rebecca Ferguson? Was she there? No, she didn't. They told us very quickly that she was, her flight was coming this? in later. Yeah, I know. It sucked. Um, but no, so so we go to, this is, I don't even know if I've told Jake about this. They're like, let's go do some interviews. And they take us to a set and, and we're going to do the interviews on this set. There's a couch and there's stairs and they put in like a director's chair and the of it. And the set that we're sitting in to talk to Mike Flanagan about Dr. Sleep is the dilapidated room 237. Oh my gosh. I am sitting there. realize this is going to be a very bra- like a very braggy uh, uh, story that I'm telling everyone. Have so you heard this show? We, we are 92 episodes into this show. I know. I never know. heard yeah. us ever. <laughs> so, so the, like the three little stairs that lead up to the bedroom that then lead to the bathroom. That's where I'm sitting asking these questions. So are you and overlooking things? I'm overlooking things. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so I'm immediately te- they let us walk around. I'm immediately texting Sean, and I'm like, I'm in the bathroom. I'm in the bathroom, capital T H E, the bathroom. Insane. Uh, at, we see the blue hallway where like the where the twins are, um, and all this is recreated and definitely you know very old and, and unkept. They they didn't really tell us while we were there. They still keep things. It's not like they just tell you the whole movie. They still keep things pretty secretive, and they wouldn't tell us exactly how they end up there, why they're there, when they're there, anything like that. But it was clear that it was, you know, kind of destroyed or unkept. Um, so we do all the interviews there. The interviews went went really well. I Mike Flanagan was uh, really impressed me because you get, um, and Sean, you can speak to this as well, you kind of get your 10 minutes or so with them and then they rotate out. They're in the middle of, sh- they really are in the middle of shooting. So especially with directors who are constantly in need, um, what they, was his vibe like? Was he like, could you see he the was, wheels turning in his mind about what the next scene was going to be? Or like, it sounds like he just kind of like left that aside and went, you know what? You're my focus. Uh Oh, th- that was what was so impressive. Yeah. So he did have a lot of plates spinning and we got to see him direct a little bit. Um, it, really impressive. Like, you know, knows what he's doing. What I loved, though, is that he was really attentive to us cool. and really cared that we were there mm-hmm. um, and what that meant. And he was he's such a fan of the material. And he was so, this was their last week and a half of shooting. So this is long into the shoot. And he was just as excited and, and upbeat as you might think he would be on like the first week. Uh, he's a big he's Mike fan again. Yeah. Kevin, you <laughs> took it right away from Were you going to, were you going fan again? Oh, our wheels were turning. Jake, Jake, can we, can we both? Gabe, you just want to, Gabe, you want to just text me the rest of the story? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mike Fanagan. All right, keep going. I'm a uh, huge no, no. So, so what I wanted to point out is, is we got to talk to him for about 10 minutes and then they were like, Hey, we're going to shoot. He has to go. And he told us, he said, stay here. I'm coming back. So we, we got to interview a couple other people. Um, but he did, he came back and he spent another 15 minutes with us, uh, just asking questions and stuff like that. Um, and then we went and sat and watched more of this scene, which was like, this, it definitely was not the, the main purpose we were there for. Um, so then they're like, well, let's go. We're going to go show you a new set. And so we get up after we do the interviews and everything. Uh-oh. And they take us out of one warehouse and we're heading to the other. And 
uh, up next, we're outside and up to my left sprinting is Mike Flanagan. And he goes, oh, you taking him to studio whatever, you know, whatever, 18 or whatever <laughs> it was. Awesome. And And the PR person's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, I have to see your guys' faces. <laughs> and he just comes with us. <laughs> and he's, he's so excited. And we walk in and it's just a dark studio. Uh, all you see is kind of like wood paneling that's just enormously high. Uh, and then we walk into the opening and it's the fucking Colorado Lounge oh, from Stanley oh, Kubrick's like The, the Shining. Like the and everything? To scale, to the Colorado Lounge itself. So the, the big staircase, uh, the fireplace, and all the the sort of like Native American decorations. Was the typewriter like there? There was a ty- uh, the typewriter wasn't there, oh. but there was a space you could see the space for it. He actually brought up an interesting point. Uh, he said I hadn't realized this uh, that apparently he uses Jack Torrance uses like three different typewriters throughout the film, and so they had to spend time trying to figure out which one to use. He thinks oh, it was wow. like a some way that like like Kubrick was trying to you know mess with people's sense of reality or whatever. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was interesting you bring up the typewriter because that was a point that he brought up. It's massive, dude. You cannot, it is, it's not like, you know, you kind of picture a movie set and it's like, uh, you know, it's done to, to sort of as a visual trick for camera. You know, you don't need everything there. You can shoot a little bit here. It was, they built a hotel and we got to walk <laughs> up the staircase. I got to walk around the, the, the hallways. Um, wow. And it was absolutely gorgeous. And Kevin, the one thing I was excited to talk to you about was the, I don't know if you talked to Flanagan about this, but the attention to detail that they took of recreating the black and white photos on the wall as best that they could. No. Counting the number of logs. What do you mean logs. by recreating? Like, did they reprint them or did they get them again? Or like, so they, like, they, like, they basically said, uh, if, I, if memory serves, they had their set deck team uh, sort of study those that they couldn't frame because all that stuff had been destroyed. Oh, cool. And so they would, they would, make photos that kind of fit that compositions that you could tell that were out of focus, but they reshot all of those. And there's, there's a ton of them that they fit out. They counted the number of logs next to the fireplace and put the correct number of logs. That's the, awesome. The, man. the sand in the ashtrays in the hallways outside the hotel doorways is the right kind of sand and everything. Like he, to a T like he just, I was on the set of the shining and it was absolutely, uh, just, just insane. One, uh, I'll kind of round it out with this. Cause we mentioned ready player one, one fun note, uh, during the interviews, the thing that they kept mentioning was like, we're not trying to out Kubrick Kubrick. They're like, we're not, that's not our goal here. Uh, and that was the line that they kept giving. We walked into this and this was a, a few weeks after Ready Player One came out and I leaned over to the producer and I said, well, you weren't trying to out Kubrick Kubrick, but you out Kubrick Spielberg. That's for sure. <laughs> we digitally recreated awesome. all of that because it was, if you don't mind me asking it was insane. about the cameras and stuff like that, if you don't mind. Um, like, did you, oh, I really thought you were going into a pun. No, 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 no. I actually, I'm super <laughs> curious because like the attention and detail that Gabe is referring mm-hmm. to is something that I definitely caught on to in the film. I didn't speak to Flanagan about it specifically, but um, when when you were on set, like how much did you get to see the cinematographer setting up the sequences? Because the shots in that film are so, it's a really well shot film. It's a yeah. beautifully core, uh, 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 shot. So I'm curious like what you saw in regards to lighting, what you saw in regards to were actors standing in while the lighting was getting set up. I've never really been on a massive set where I've seen like yeah. major productions happening. So like, what did you see from a production standpoint? That that's what was weird is we didn't see much, um, of the shooting. We, all we had was a monitor and some headphones okay. and we were like on the other side of the studio and they were inside, uh, the house essentially like the, the young girl's house. Um, and so everything was in there. We didn't really see anybody. The actors would sometimes come out cause we were near like the other monitors where they would sit when they weren't needed. Um, but I didn't get to really see any cameras. Um, it kind of looked typical, like, uh, big sort of tungsten lights. Yeah. Uh, but that's what was so weird though. It was very closed off. We didn't really get to see the shooting as much as you might think. Um, and shout out to 
to Warner Brothers and their team, uh, I think it was Liza and Melanie specifically, because this was, like I said, a week and a half before they were um, finished shooting. And the reason that we even got this was because they were destroying the Colorado Lounge later that week, oh. like at the beginning of the week. And the and they said, their PR team said, we need to show people this. Like, this is, we've done something really cool. Like, we can't just not show anybody this. And so that's why it was like, here's Thursday, be there on Friday, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, to, to uh, Gabe, and so it was just yeah. awesome. To Gabe's point, awesome. though, like you think about like Gabe's story should be a great example of filmmakers who care. Um, yeah. Filmmakers who actually go out of their way to build sets, to build things. I mean, it's interesting because as you're watching Dr. Sleep, when they walk into the overlook in that scene in that room that that Gabe is referring to, it looks like they actually was physically there. Like it was physically built, which it was apparently. So like, and yeah. like Gabe makes an interesting point about camera tricks and lighting and how you can shoot things at certain angles sometimes to cheat things and not have to build things out. I mean, that's cool to me. And that's another reason why it makes me sad that a film like that doesn't do well because so much work goes into a movie like that. And it is by someone who genuinely cares about what the audience, I mean, the story of Mike Flanagan running along the side of you guys saying, oh, are you going to show them this is like exactly something like any of us would do if we were a director on a set like that. I mean, like he's basically, this is a guy who loves horror, who loves Stephen King, who loves The Shining. And I think we've discussed this in the show, but that movie does a great job of kind of servicing both um, fan bases and, and, and giving everyone kind of a happy medium. Um, And it's cool to know based on Gabe's storyline, how excited Flanagan was, because that's the, that's the level of excitement I recognize when he, even when I was doing a press interview with him, the guy loves his work and he loves making things work. Gabe, did you, um, this, so the scene you saw film was not actually, Mm -hmm. it did not actually end up in the movie. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, Sean, I assume this is okay to say because it's really inconsequential. It's uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's not like a deleted scene that's like, oh, wow, that, that would have been different. It's, um, it was after the scene with the spoons. Oh, yeah. Uh, with yeah. At the birthday party. Okay. It's like a re- her parents reacting to her powers. That was it. It, it was like them putting her to bed and having a conversation about like them kind of being freaked out by what they saw. Is it a scene that you think was necessary or do you think it was a scene that deserved to be cut? Um... I mean, what, what did the runtime end up coming in? It was like two and a half hours. Like two and a half. Did that scene add any substance? No, because I, I feel like at the finished product, I understood why it was. Coming. I didn't really need them to show. I understood that like she was concerned about her parents and it's freaking out about her powers, and that's really I think all it served from what I saw of it. It mm-hmm. is really funny. Like there have so been days cool, when we've been invited to sets to watch them shoot some stuff, and it's a massive scene, and you understand like, oh, I get why you wanted us to come on this day. Right. Uh, there are other times we go to set and you watch them. Like the thing you watch them film is nothing, mm-hmm. uh, and then they end up bringing you around to a lot of really cool stuff, and that sort of pays Which off. Which is almost cooler. Like I like it's the fact yeah. that you got to see the overlook, dude. Uh, that's so awesome. hopefully. I'll have to reach back out to them because they're they're supposed to share an image. We got to take a group photo on the step. <laughs> That's awesome. In the Colorado Lounge, That's uh, so, so great. I'll try to put that on social, um, or at least the real <laughs> are one you holding an axe? I, no, I wish I did take a photo of me <laughs> doing the. The Tony finger oh, uh, to like a press thing. I was surprised they didn't bring that back in the movie with yeah. uh, Danny. I was surprised. It's kind that- of. Is it too like? Is it too on the nose? Or like, was he but young? wasn't that that was wasn't that because Danny didn't understand what The Shining was? So yeah. he, so he sure. thought it was Tony. Like they, like he wouldn't be yeah. doing that anymore because he knows what the, yeah. he knows what it is now. That's interesting. It's also, yeah, it's it's a little. I don't want to say dated, but it's just such a thing of that oh, film and of that. I time. know. I want to ask you. So you finally got to see Doctor Sleep then, Gabe? Yeah, did, yeah, yeah. Did you get? Oh, so you didn't get to see? Because sometimes it's really, really cool. 
to, to see like the finished scene. scene. Yeah, to be on a set. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll set you up in front of monitors um, yeah. and you'll watch whatever they're recording for the day. So you do see what it's going to look like in camera. Right. Um, and then I know a number of times I've been able to catch, you know, something we watched them shoot that day. You see it in the film. Yeah. So, right. Like Sean did the Spider-Man Far From Home set visit and you got to see scene shot. But I mean, Gabe, the idea that you were in the Overlook in the lounge when you mm-hmm. saw the when you saw that in the film for the first time, how differently did it come across on the big screen versus what you experienced in person? Like, did um, it feel good... the same way? It really did. Yeah, because it's it looks especially in The Shining. Uh, it looks massive. Like I don't know when the last time you guys saw The Shining. I I rewatched The Shining right before I went to see Doctor Sleep. Yeah, uh, which Same. really I think enhanced the experience. I cool. agree with you. I um, actually tell people to do that. By the way, watch The Shining yeah. again before you go. There's so many things. Not to go too far of a tangent of Doctor. Well, I mean Doctor Sleep, but there are so many little things. Uh, even when we were on the set, that I noticed like patterns in like the little girl's like blanket on her on her on her uh, bed kind of resembled the. The carpet in uh, the Overlook and, oh, wow. and the colors of the of her room is like a very similar. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was the exact shade as the like green that's in the two thirty seven bathroom. Little things like that that are like they're not storytelling pieces. They're not they don't mean anything other than like we're in that world. And I thought it was really were awesome. Touches. Okay, one more question for you: When you were in the room, yeah. when you were in the room doing the interview with Flanagan, the bathroom was there. Did did they did it have like the the a naked woman? In no, it? Yeah. no, no. <laughs> the um, what do you, I'm like blanking on what you call it? A shower curtain. Was the curtain like there? Like was it all? Oh, set you up? you know what? You know what? I don't remember if there was a. That's a good question. I don't remember if there was a shower curtain or not. I was I was uh, genuinely curious. Like how what, were you on a set they were using to shoot? The movie. That's where you were doing the interviews, right? Like they had yeah. shot. Yeah, the yeah. That was that's that's okay. what they had shot. Yeah, that's, that's what they so, used. It. They had had all built. And I'll I'll it's close this out because I probably am going a little insane. long. But I think this is interesting. No, one dude, of, this is one this of the, is gold. I, I it's I text Sean this. I text Sean this um, at the end of the day, and I was like, dude, I said I know that if you knew what I was going to see, one, <laughs> you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have sent me. <laughs> never. <laughs> I will candidly tell you right now. Never. You never no. would have seen that no. invitation. <laughs> But I said, but I am glad you did because it's legitimately one of the most cherished memories I have. That's not a thing. Well, think about this. In what world would you ever expect to literally visit the set of The Shining? Yeah. I know, place that, that doesn't like exist. Me getting to walk on the set of like, like maybe on like the Millennium Falcon, like that, like, yeah, like right, something like comparable right, like right. that. Even, even then that, that exists now because we have that big franchise. Right. I never... I don't think any of you know. I guess Fair I hadn't point. really thought of the book. I never would have thought like, oh yeah, they're gonna bring back a Stanley Kubrick film. That's right, just it's right, not right, even a right, thing right. to be like, oh, I hope one day I see that. Did they give so you any of the sides or awesome. anything? Did you get any like, um, did you get to see what they were like? Did they show you the paperwork of what they no. were shooting that day and the call time? Nothing like nothing like that. They they did have what was cool though is they had these reference boards up um, that they had uh, frames from The Shining that I could see their like set deck and. Oh, that's cool. uh, Everyone, you could see the notes, the annotations they were making of like how to get the uh, the set just right. And uh, you know, there's, there's, it's really unnerving to to be in a in a movie or a, an environment that's part of a movie. And the, I'm going to bring it back to this: when Kevin and I were in LA, and his hotel was next to the Fox Building, oh yeah, which is mm-hmm. the Die Hard yeah. Building. And uh, Kevin can tell you my face when I got out of the cab. <laughs> I didn't even realize where we were logistically. Yeah. And we got out and I saw the Nakatomi building and I was like, oh, my God, like I've never seen it. Like I've never been up close to it. You were meant so to then come as, to my hotel. We were, we were meant I, to not get into that first movie. So right, you right, come right. back to my hotel and change and then see the Nakatomi Tower. But it wasn't even just that. So as we walked to it, 
there was a moment when we were on the corner and I turned and in my head, what I saw was hmm. the shot from the movie where they pan the street and the, and the car, the armored car is coming up the street and they're eventually going to bazooka it from the building. And in my mind, I hmm. saw the scene in the movie because now I'm standing on the actual block and that just like you get like a vertigo almost like in, inside yeah. of you. You're like, oh, this is really weird. Like this is the movie that I've seen so many times and this is the place where they actually shot it. And so for you, you're stepping into a, a, so a classic cool. movie that you would never think you'd get a chance to step into. That's, yeah, not that's once. That's amazing. Not once. I was, yeah. Don't worry, was, Sean. Uh, in 30 years, you get to go on the set of Eyes Wide Shut too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was at. Uh, I was at. Um, I, I went to a Q and A um, uh, over the weekend for Jane Silent Bob, and Kevin Smith got on stage and did his Q and A, and he told a similar story to what Gabe just told, but about visiting the Rise of Skywalker set. Oh, and that's right. The the. Exact way Gabe described it was almost exactly the way Kevin described it. And I think you guys have already seen the story where he, Kevin Smith was offered to go look at the last shot of Rise of Skywalker. Did you guys hear the story? Mm-hmm. And, and he, he said, said no. And he said yeah. no. So yeah. that's he, smart. I'm it's glad very smart. So, he, so yeah. we're at this QA, I'll keep this brief. And he's telling a similar set story to Gabe. And he's going through, it's exactly how Gabe did it too. He said he sat behind a wall, he was there for five days. He sat behind a wall in a different room watching a monitor. And the scene he got to see film was the scene in the trailer when 3PO says, I want to take another look at my friends. And he said, and it was, it was weird. You heard the whole audience like gasp. He goes, that scene, I can't tell you what it is or what happened, but there's a moment in that scene that changes the Skywalker story forever. He said this in the, he said this during the Q and a, and he said, uh, and so he starts telling the story about like what it was like to be on set and how every single person um, there was excited to see him on set. But similarly to Gabe, he was behind a monitor watching the scene. And then he tells the story, which everybody already knows about uh, one of the crew guys goes over to, to Kevin and goes, hey, if you walk up to those bleachers, this is how this is. I'm paraphrasing Kevin Smith, by the way. Yeah. You walk up to those bleachers and look down. You're going to see the final scene from Skywalker. And, he, oh, and, 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 Kevin, and so Kevin said he went to Abrams and he went to Abrams and he, and he was like, oh, they told you. And he goes, yeah, he goes, he goes, if I were you, I wouldn't go. Don't don't do it uh, because I wouldn't I, I wouldn't want to see this if I hadn't <laughs> seen the movie. So Kevin said he literally stopped and he had that he was so close to walking up to the bleachers and looking down. And he said he didn't do it. Um, but similarly to, to, to Gabe's story. The way he described JJ on set is similar to how Flanagan was. Just this this guy who cares about his material. And the way Kevin described, he was there for five days. I don't know why he was there for five days, but it's if I can find a video of that story that he told yeah. on the stage, it was it was amazing. So I want to hear it. All right. Well, cool. we want to bid Gabe. Yeah, that was uh, cool, Gabe. Thank you for the story. That yeah, was, dude, that was awesome. Yeah, thanks for letting me talk. Farewell. Thanks for coming on, Gabe. Obviously, now go back to your chair. Turn your mic we'll off. Well, do do I say do I have to do I say Dunkirk? Yeah. What do I say? Loud. Dunkirk? Dunkirk? Gabe, you left go out one Dunkirk. very important detail of your story though. What's that? That I'm just What's really that? upset about. That when Gabe arrived on set, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. he was really, really animated, so happy to be there. Everybody was, was. really kind of like laughing. And then when I they was. got on set, there was signs everywhere that said, hush. It, yeah. Shh. Hush. Hush. Mike Flanagan directed that movie, Jake. No, I got it. No, I got it. I got it. No, I got it. All right, that's Gabe's appearance on the show. Bye, Dunkirk. <laughs> took, 
took 92 episodes. All right, this week in movies. Uh, we are going to talk about the films that are coming out. We're going to keep it very brief because I forgot to even mention at the top of the show, we're playing 90s Blend. And we need time to talk about this stuff. And we have kind of a hard out on this episode. So has anyone seen Charlie's Angels? My wife saw it and liked it a lot, actually. Shout out to there you go. Lauren, if I can give her a plug. DC yeah. Film Girl on Twitter. She interviewed the cast, Elizabeth Banks and, and uh, Kristen Stewart. She's going to pop it up on her social media at some point this week. But um, it was really good. OK, I've not seen it. Ferrari. I want to point out that um, we have a TIFF episode uh, for a longer discussion about Ford versus Ferrari because I, I caught it up in Toronto. Did you guys catch it in Toronto? Or no, I just fact? saw it. You just saw it. Okay. We talked a lot about it in previous episodes. I cannot recommend this movie enough. Um, it's it's right there at the bottom of my top 10. And every time another movie that I see threatens to bump it off, I'm always like, eh, but I really love Ford Ferrari. It's it, it to me. It's, it's exactly you know exactly the type of movie that it is. You know, Ron Howard makes these movies, <laughs> um, but it's hey, I loved it, Rush. Well, I love Rush too. Point. They're just so well done. I think it's know? better like, than that. But than than that, it though. is. It, I mean, it no, is. not not Rush. I mean, it's better than what people are saying as a standard movie. It's yeah. better. It's 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 almost like taking sta- a standard film and then giving it an upgrade. Like it's like it's just that well told. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, the performances are great. Uh, the way that James Mangold uh, films his racing scenes is unbelievable. It's just a really, really good, good story. And uh, I cannot recommend it enough. I think you guys both say go see it for sure. Thumbs yeah, up. I, I'm with you in, in that it's a movie that if if it somehow gets bumped off my top 10 list, it's probably going to hurt the most. Like I, I really I almost don't want to see that many more good movies this year because I want to keep it on my top 10 list. I really loved yeah. it. I thought the chemistry between Damon and Bale. I mean, those are two guys I never knew I really needed in a movie together, but they're just yeah. so good together. Um, and there's a quote that they keep using in the promos. Um, not that I necessarily like pull promo quotes, but it, 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 I think refers to it as like old school movie making. And, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, there are some racing sequences that... I mean, they're using the real cars and like that they're, you know, Mangold is right there with these cars as they're taking lefts and taking rights and speeding down these runways. I mean, you almost feel like Steve McQueen would have been in this movie 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, um, exactly. It, it, it feels like it could have been made then. Uh, yeah. I, I can't recommend it enough. I, I had a smile on my face the whole time. Yeah. Ford versus I, Ferrari. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sean. No, I was going to move on to the next one. I was just going to say Ford versus Ferrari is literally the definition of why practical effects will always be better than CGI. Um, It is a hand-built film that feels you you could put your hand into the screen and touch every single thing that's happening in that in that in that in that movie. And I think the beauty of the film is not only the racing scenes being so amazingly awesome to watch, even if you know the ending, it still works. Um, it's the characters, it's the two of them, it's the friendship, it's the, it's, it's the way they interact that makes this movie so special. And I want to give credit, again, to practical effects and how real this film feels. I, when I spoke to uh, Christian Bale and Matt Damon for the, for the press junket, uh, Bale told me a really good story because most people think about people driving really fast, doing like animated, like crazy stuff. And he, so he said he took a camera... And he put it in his own home car at home and drove around to see what his face looked like when he drove normal. Like when he wasn't like he wasn't acting like he was driving. What does it look like if I'm going 100 miles per hour and I'm holding a steering wheel? Do I am I am I shaking a little bit? So that's a really interesting aspect of the movie is how real Damon and Bale sell it. 
to make you think they're going over 200 miles per hour. And that's not just like acting. They, they, that is legitimate. They have to sell that. You have to yeah. believe they're going that fast. That's a, that's a perfect marriage between Mangold and Bale and Damon. So it's a phenomenal right. film. See it on the biggest screen possible. All right. Am I the only one who's seen Waves? I have not seen it. Waves is um, tremendous. And all I'm going to say about this is the best advice I received about Waves up in Toronto is don't read about it. Just go. Uh, people said that about Parasite also. Don't read about it. Just go. Um, Waves is one of those movies where the you don't want to know what's coming. Um, it's Trey Edward Schultz. He directed It Comes at Night and he directed a movie called Krisha that got him some awards consideration. We are also going to have um, an extended talk with uh, Trey Edward Schultz on next week's episode. He's our Real Blend guest. I got to sit down with him in Savannah. Uh, just a great guy and a really good conversation. And we kept it spoiler free because he knows that his movie is is tough to discuss until you get into some of the things that happen in it. And um, he also understands how much he really wants to protect a lot of those plot twists. So I will not say anything else, but I will tell you that it's in my top 10. Uh, and I will tell you that our conversation next week with Trey about Waves is um, spoiler-free, so you can enjoy it. Uh, and it's rolling out slowly, so find it and 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 make sure that you see it in a theater. And Sean, uh, this year we've we've all seen a lot of movies, and I know that this movie meant a lot to Sean because we talked about it when you were at the um, at the festival, and like yep. you were blown away, legitimately blown away from an emotional standpoint. I've heard that from a lot of people. I can't wait to see it. Sterling K. Brown, um, I've just heard is outstanding. I've heard everyone's amazing in the movie. I'm you guys have screenings it. of it set up soon, or I, I, I think they, out, yeah, they yeah they screen stuff. I was oh, just screen I missed it. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, uh, last one is Good Liar. So Jake, you got to talk to Bill Condon. Tell us about Good Liar. I mean, it's it's a very solid film. It, you know, unfortunately, it's one of those movies that you know whenever we talk about when movies are coming out, is it worth stopping what you're doing and paying to go to the theaters to see? Sure. I can't say it is, especially in relation to everything else that's coming out in theater. Like, I can't say, go see The Good Liar over yeah. something especially like Ford this, versus this Ferrari. Yeah. yeah, this week um, in particular. It's a really solid movie. You know, if you were to pay to go see it in theaters, I don't think you would be disappointed just because those two are just so magnetic together. I mean, they they can make anything good, and they're really great together. Um it, it also would be a very good movie to just wait until it hits theaters, or I'm sorry, wait till it hits streaming and then watch it, you know, on okay. Disney Plus. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you can uh, get on it. Yeah. You know, if you, if you, <laughs> let, let's say hypothetically you watch this on a plane a year from now, it, that would be really, two really entertaining hours of your life on a plane. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. I'll take that. All right. Um, we're going to move into the blend game because uh, we got to leave ourselves time to, to fully get into this conversation and, and what, what both of you said. So the, the nineties for you guys is what the eighties were for me, obviously more formative years. Uh, and your sentiments were reflected by a lot of the blenders who played along on social media, which was just, this is too hard. Like this generation is too. And I kind of felt that way about seventies also, because there's so many classics from the seventies and kind of when we've been doing these decades blends, you almost just throw it out. You just throw out, like, obviously trying to pick a best from any of these decades is stupid. So you just almost have to go personal. And that's why so far, when we've done these decades blends, I, I've appreciated our explanations uh, more than almost any other sort of conversation that we get into. Um, I, Gabe tells me I get to go first. Do we want to guess? Anyone want to try I, to guess? I, I, if too we, hard? Gabe, if you don't mind, that'd be fun to guess them. If you, if that's okay, 
real quick, try to guess mine. All right, I'm going to guess. Fiction. I'm going to say Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Fiction. Yeah. Uh, Forrest Gump. <laughs> so I looked at the decade of the 90s, and the decade of the 90s to me spoke very highly of um, independent filmmakers. I think you were saying uh, Independence Day. <laughs> independent filmmakers uh, trying to make movies outside of the studio system and and breaking down norms and, and just trying to like grab a camera, grab friends and go. And that you got clerks and you got early Tarantino Reservoir Dogs, movies like that. Obviously, you could have gone with Fincher or some such thing. But because of that... Um, that aesthetic that reminds me of the nineties so much. Um, I went to a movie that I probably have gone back and watched 50, 60 times, um, because of how much I enjoy it. Just enjoy. I enjoy every single scene and aspect of it. I chose swingers battlefield earth swingers to me is such a, Battlefield Earth. You're a jerk. Sorry. And I said it right when you said your pick. I'm so sorry. It was literally in the same breath. I was trying to make a joke. I just ruined your pick. That's okay. I'm so sorry. I picked Swingers. I'm a jerk. Um, which many people consider a John Favreau film, but it was Doug Lyman who directed it. Um, but the movie is so Favreau and Vince Vaughn, you know, at that time. And it's uh, it's Favreau as somebody who moved out to Los Angeles and is suffering from a breakup. And it's just a very like 20s. You're in your 20s and the girl who you you're your high school sweetheart who you've been with forever uh, doesn't understand why you're chasing your dream in California. And of course, he's got this whole group of friends that he goes out with. And it talks very much about the L.A. culture uh, at the time. I don't know if you guys remember how popular um, swing music became because of that soundtrack. Um, bands like, uh, I can't even think mighty, of Mighty Boss Tones. No, that's Scott. the Boss Tones, but there was another one. Um, God, who sang that stupid song? Real Big they Fish. They were on HFS all the time. Um, yeah, I'm blanking on it. Um, Squirrel Nut Zipper. Squirrel Nut oh, Zipper. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember them. They did like the big band yes. sound swing stuff and it became popular because of swingers. Um, and just like it became very quotable that you're so money, you don't even know it, things like that. But Vince Vaughn in that movie when I was in college was like my spirit animal. Like whereas people put up posters of um, uh, Pacino as Scarface like I wanted posters of Vince Vaughn in uh, Swingers because the scene in the diner makes me laugh hmm. so damn hard where, he, he, you know, they're drunk and he's celebrating the fact that Favreau danced with Heather Graham, a, a young Heather Graham stealing shows. And he goes, ah, ah, why are you kicking me? Fine, I'll ask her. <laughs> Man, where do the high school girls hang out around hmm. here? That line makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> and when he turns around and hands his plate of food, there she is, there she is, with, always with the personality. And he turns around and hands the food to the guy behind him. I'm not even hungry. I, I couldn't even eat. <laughs> he cracks me up. But the scene that that so the the scene with the um, answering machine where he keeps calling the girl back, he oh, gets yeah. the girl's number and he keeps leaving the messages on her to the point where she finally picks up and she's like, uh, Mike, stop calling me like this. It's not, like he just torpedoes it. And then the scene where Ron Livingston comes to visit him 
and says like, dude, you got to snap out of this. Like we're, we, we moved out here. We're chasing our dream. Like I booked, uh, you know, a, a pilot or I'm, I'm goofy, you know, in, at Disney, uh, now, like I'm struggling, but at least we're in the entertainment industry. At least we're chasing our dream. Like that spoke to me so much on a level of like right around the time I was trying to pursue getting into entertainment journalism and it was, you know, a struggle at first. Who knew where it was going to go kind of thing, right? And I was on a cusp of like, do I really abandon um, this job that I had at the university and chase after writing about movies? Like, is this the right thing to do? And then Ron Livingston had this conversation with John Favreau. He's like, dude, will you look around? Like, it's 75 degrees here every single day, you know? Like, don't talk to me about when are we going to make it? We've made it. You know, we're already here. We're doing it. And and I was like, you know what? That's right. Like, the idea of doing it, the idea of like taking that step off of that cliff and, and living your dream, whether it's happening or not happening, that resonated in a way that it was just like, God, I couldn't. I, it's That really stuck to my bones. And so... It's super funny, like just the way that they first got into the standoff with the guys in the parking lot and they almost pulled the gun on them, the gangbangers. And then when they showed up at Vaughn's apartment later, they're all there playing NHL hockey on the Sega. Uh, all of it just resonates. And there's a funny Pulp Fiction joke in it where they do their slow walk and everything about just the culture of L.A. and driving to a party and the way the Favreau's like, we're going to drive around. We're going to go to this one party. No one's going to be there. We're not going to want to stay. We're going to get back in our car. All of that just resonated. It came at a time where I was just like, oh my God, I love everything about this film. So when I think about the 90s, I probably go right to Swingers. And it's funny. We make a lot of jokes about cheese pizza. And uh, But if you go down Favreau's filmography, I think I could pull out a That's number awesome. of different films and why they're so important to me. And so that is my... That is my pick. And the one I pick. almost went to beyond that was uh, A Few Good Men, which I think is one of the most Ooh. brilliant screenplays of all time. And Sean's- I, I still Sean's stand by how is Rob Reiner not considered to be one of the best directors working? Yeah. Sean's personal stories are always my favorite. Like the story he tells about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Very similar oh. passion. Yes, very I love similar. That story. That's another awesome. really good one. Uh, Jake, I've been told you get to go next. I'm going to guess that you went with Jurassic Park because I think you have. That's my same guess. I went with Jurassic Park. Yeah. I, guess so. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could like blow your mind. With no, it's okay. Movie. Um, yeah. I, if only just because it's the uh, Jurassic Park came out uh, in the summer of 93. So I would have been a little over five. It's the first movie that made me wonder about movies beyond what I was like, just seeing it for entertainment value. It's the first time I can remember thinking like, wait, that doesn't exist. How does that, how do, wait, what, you know, because you know that you by using the those animatronics the T-Rex is so tangible you know like when i think as a kid i think i could see like the T-1000 and understand that that wasn't real because it you know like as great as the special effects were you could tell that that's not a thing that there's something about that, that being able to texture i like i still feel like i could touch the T-Rex and know exactly what the T-Rex feels like now, um, when you went to Hawaii and were and you got to be on the Jurassic Park set to throw back a little bit to yeah. our conversation did you feel that yeah, oh, especially that, I mean, that was one of the reasons, one of the greatest nights of my entire life was sleeping in a tent with Kevin McCarthy uh, <laughs> in, in the valley. Yeah, where we slept the Dilop- there. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the valley where the Dilophosaurus were chasing um, uh, Sam Neill and, and the kids. And not, and not just that, but also like interviewing Jeff Goldblum in yeah. that valley. Remember the tree? Uh, Remember the tree? Astounding. Yeah, the tree, yeah. The tree the is there. Where, there? Where, the, where, the, where, the, where they oh, hide yeah. from the T-Rex. Yeah, the tree's there? still there. Yeah. Well, the only, um, the only thing about it is, though, like, it's a little less Jurassic Bark on it now, um, but the tree does, it, it is still, it is still there. It's still there. Does Colin Trevorrow come around and ruin it for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. 
like Tom so I, you know I, I, there are a lot there are a lot of like memories I have associated with that movie and 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 some of them are like I remember taking my parents taking me to see it in theaters I remember my grandmother screaming when um the no Galileus was what chased the kids around Dilophosaurus is the one with the with the spits the venom so when yeah. the when the Dilophosaurus um has the you know the the first time it goes after um Newman. Uh, it goes after Wayne Knight. I remember my grandmother screaming at the top of her lungs. And then I also remember, you know, I told you guys a story about, you know, how we used to always like buy like used videos. And, you know, I never would get them new on the first day. I had to wait a few months. I remember uh, a day when it was like pouring rain outside. It had to be a Tuesday. Um, my grandma coming up the driveway and having a new copy of Jurassic Park. You know, because she'd went and bought it for, I knew like just come out, like something that like I knew it was coming out, but I just assumed that like, okay, I'm gonna have to wait a couple of months before I'm able to get it. She came like it had it. And I remember that and just watched it on a loop. And I still, um, I interviewed uh, Laura Dern yesterday and pulled some some old clips from Jurassic Park because I wanted to ask her about uh, Jurassic World 3 and I just went down a rabbit hole of watching all of the, like they because of course you know when you pull when you get clips on YouTube they have all like the best clips and just like the score it's it's my all-time favorite score um just there's it's just pure movie magic like it so like good. everything about Jurassic Park is what makes me love movies. I think I what, did he do Schindler's List the same year? Yeah, he, in, in the is same year he had the highest grossing <laughs> film of all time and uh, and the movie what? that won Best Picture. He told me, I, I, I interviewed him uh, and asked him about those years where he had multiple movies because the year that I interviewed him was, I think I got him for 1010 and he had also just done War Horse. And he told me how the, the, the roughest one where he had multiple movies in one year was the Jurassic Park Schindler's List year because he would be on the set like uh, in Auschwitz and they would be sending him uh, CG images of like Velociraptors and he said he felt so guilty and his conscience was like just so ripped apart because he's like, I'm sitting here trying to approve dinosaur shots in a concentration camp. Yeah, and he yeah, said yeah. that he would never again do two movies that had that like one because he knows that if he's going to do two, that one's going to bleed into the other. You're going to be looking yeah. at a lot of stuff from the first one while you're shooting the second one. And he said he's now made a conscious choice where he will no longer That's uh, crazy. do that. And Which so, is interesting because yeah, Ready Player One and the Post were so wildly Yeah, different. but no, probably not as like, you know, like no, nothing in the Post was quite as drastic as, as anything to do with Schindler's List. So Kevin, um, we're going to, yeah, we're yeah. going to run out of time. I yeah. gotta, there so, we go. Um, yeah. A, a spoiler alert. Jake loves Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I do. Kevin, uh, I think, had given himself his own challenge yeah. of not picking T2. Yeah. The thing, Terminator 2 would have been my obvious choice, so I didn't want to go with yes. that, but it, that would be my choice, and Pulp Fiction was another one that I was uh, obviously thinking about as well. Uh, I ultimately went with The Sandlot, only because Ooh. it was a, it was a wow. film. That's the film that like spoke to me at the age I saw it, and when I watch it, over and over again, as I get older, it brings me back to how I felt in the 90s as a kid. Um, That's awesome. Like, there's a great scene in the Sandlot where uh, it's the s'more sequence, but they're in the treehouse. And that just, like, I used to, my sleepovers with my friends were my favorite thing growing up. We used to build forts and, like, um, it just reminded me of those, like, fun times. We, we would actually have an entire playroom with blankets as forts uh, covering the whole room. You had to sneak in and out. You had to crawl into the room to get into it. Um, but just like little things like that are things that come back to my mind because of rewatching the Sandlot. Um, the camaraderie of the friends, 
Um, all they wanted to do, there was no cell phones, there was nothing. They just wanted to go out and play baseball with their friends, uh, having the crush on the lifeguard uh, and the, the fantasy that he creates where he, or in his real life where he fake drowns and gets kissed by Wendy Peppercorn <laughs> and squints. Um, that movie just kind of, it just embodies everything I remember about growing up. Uh, I played baseball growing up. My dad was my coach growing up. Uh, we put, we threw the ball as a kid growing up. I mean, I know that in the movie, Smalls' his parents are divorced and his stepfather's played by... Um I'm blanking now off the top of my head. Dennis Leary? Dennis Leary, you're right. And there's that, there's that scene where they're playing catch and he hits him in the face with the ball and, like, the mom. And, like, like there's so many, like, and, like, stealing the baseball. There's so many moments in that movie. Like, to this day, I still get excited if I see a pair, a pair of PF Flyers. I still I actually have the PF Flyers that Benny the Jet uh, wears uh, at the end when he's uh, being chased by the Beast. Um, I think James <laughs> Earl Jones is seen in that great film. great James Earl Jones performance. That performance is so amazing when they finally get into his house. And the look on... James Earl Jones's face as he's smiling as he understands that he has a ball signed by all the Yankees uh, versus this one Babe Ruth ball that they lost. Um, there, I don't know. There's I could go on forever. Smalls is like terrible fishing hat that he wears in the beginning, and then he gets a, gets a better one later on. There was that movie just it still speaks to me today as a 35 year old the same way as it spoke to me when I first saw it as a kid in theaters and. It, it to me is just it just embodies everything I felt growing up, um, riding our bikes, uh, playing in forts, jumps. And like, there was just so many things in that movie that to this day still hold up. And I, I quote forever and s'mores every time I see it. I have a I went to a, 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 a hotel recently with Lauren for like an anniversary last year. We we went out and we recreated the s'mores scene in, in at the hotel because they had a fire pit. So I don't know that movie just. It speaks to me on so many levels, and if I ever want to feel like a kid again and go back to the 90s when I played baseball with my dad and my brother and um, my all my friends, that's the movie that I go back to because it puts me right back into that mindset of no responsibilities. You're a kid. The only thing you have to do is go out and play baseball after you get, out, get home from school. Um, and it's also a great Fourth of July movie. Um, it's, it's just a really it's, – it's one of my favorite movies ever made. It just makes me – get teary-eyed thinking about how great that film is and how perfectly it encapsulates that time period in my life. So That's, that's amazing. All right, here, listen to these. Great pick, Kevin. Really great pick. I love the story behind it, too. Um, listen to these audience picks. Amanda Young picked Apollo 13. Uh, John Palmer went with Schindler's List. Wow. Dave Holmes picked Heat. Carrie Ellen Case picked Jerry Maguire. And Shelby Jones picked Jurassic Park. But I mean, on top of that, we had so much participation this week and every single pick was just like, yeah, of course it's going to be that. Like, how could it not be that sort of thing? Um, That's why it's so personal. It's personal. Yeah. You got to do personal. That's the beauty of it. Especially when we get to 2000s, which is going to be coming up soon. But it's not the next week. Next week, you can reach out on Twitter using hashtag musical blend. And we're going to pick our favorite musicals. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. So you can uh, play on social media. How have done that up to this point? I don't know. I'm very surprised. Uh, you can also email us your pick if you want to. We have some people who actually now email us their picks uh, each week. And you can do it at realblend at cinemablend.com. While you're doing that, uh, you are able to email us a review, which we will now read at the bottom of the show. See, we used to read them at the top. Uh, this one was emailed in. It's Victor from New York City. And he says, hey, I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I'm now... I am new to listening to podcasts, but big fans of all of you guys, especially Kevin's mom and Dunkirk. 
Oh, <laughs> I wow. love how close. Yeah, I love how. Hold on, where did it go? I love really how enough, this is actually Kevin's close <laughs> you guys are, and how you let each other express their opinions, even if they are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, now I don't know. Maybe maybe he doesn't think that they're wrong. Maybe he thinks that like when we think each other are wrong, right? I'm gonna give him the benefit okay. for that. I listen to all the old ones, and I can't get enough of it. Please never stop. They say if you love something you do, you won't work a day. I totally agree with that. I go to the cinema often and I try and see as many movies as I can each week. I do have a question. How did you guys all meet and become so close? I just moved to a new city for work and I'm struggling to make friends. Also, Endgame is my new favorite film as well. Can't wait for phase four and to hear you guys review most of those films. So, Victor, we're running out of show. (laughs) So we are going to save the story for... How the three of us met uh, for another episode. We need a great a story time. too because Jake and I have known each other for one. ten years, so we'll get into that at some point. It's and, we, and we've told yeah. it in bits throughout the show before. Gabe loves when we um, recap things, so we're gonna. <laughs> uh, no, but we, uh, we 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 will eventually. Uh, that is a great question because uh, I actually soon. don't know. I think we should do it soon. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to remember the first time I met Sean. Because I can remember, I I can tell you the, the first, first time, time you and I met. physically met. You remember that? Yes. Yeah. Well, can you, I know exactly. What now I want to know. Well, I'll tell you after the show. All right. And and Victor, I'll tell you later at some point. Wow. Um, Victor, do me a favor. Use the hashtag Blenders um, and reach out to people on social media because there's got to be enough people in New York City who listen to our show, and there have been plenty of people who are putting together um, groups of people to hang out with. The Chicago Blenders group is basically their own family at this point now. Um, someone's got Philly Blenders uh, in their bio on Twitter, which blows me away. And I'll use this opportunity now to promote the fact that we're doing something in D.C. on Saturday, January 4th for all of our uh, DMV blenders. I don't know if DMV blenders is going to catch on. Um, the, isn't that what they call the, that area up there? How about DC Kevin? blenders? DC, DC blenders? I like DC, DC blenders. Virginia? Yeah. All right, DC. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. The DMV, for, for, for Sean's purposes, DMV's a big thing. it is weird. Like Every day, essentially, I could be in Maryland, DC, and Virginia within a five-minute period. Yes. That's how weird it is. That's why it's called the DMV. Yeah, seriously. So um, go to uh, the website, bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash realblenddc, R-E-E-L-B-L-E-N-D-D-C. We also will have it on our social media page. You got to RSVP um, because, again, not to toot our own horns in the very least, but we are um, getting a lot of people who are telling us that they're coming and we're trying to figure out where we're going to hold this thing. And the amount of people who are coming is going to dictate where we're having it. So if you think you're going to come, even though it's two months away, it's going to be Saturday, January 4th, try to give us a heads up because we, uh, we're dealing with, um, like capacity of places that we're looking, which is great. Which is an Um, awesome problem to have. It's a, it's the best problem to have. Like I can't even process the fact that we are having this problem, but it's, uh, we're getting a great response from people. Like Martin Scorsese has to come. And I said, no, no no room, man. Sorry, man. I said, sorry, brother. We're going to be talking superhero movies and we know it gets under your skin. Unfortunately. Um, also I want to mention because, uh, we talked at the top of the show that the Disney plus series launch Gabe wants me to plug the fact that I'm doing a reaction video. So excited about this YouTube page for the Mandalorian, uh, all, uh, eight episodes we're watching people know that I did it for Game of Thrones and I've been looking for the next show to potentially do I wanted to do Watchmen so Watchmen's getting pretty weird isn't it 
I haven't watched this week's, but I love it. Oh my god! Yeah, do you really? Yeah, yeah I gotta so catch up. Good. I will tell anybody. So good. I, I want to see Watchmen. I actually need to watch see Watchmen. Um, I, I, I'm just gonna say one word. Uh, Mandalorian is phenomenal. Like the episode is incredible. Go. Like it's really really so good. Yeah. good. But Jake has not seen it. Yeah. I, uh, Jake, I'm surprised that you waited this entire episode. To, I'm shocked because I know how badly well, because you I didn't want to watch it. it at work, and some of us have a job in the morning. Jake, Jake, let and, me know if and you so think I want to watch it on my giant TV when I get home. Jake, Kevin let me know if you phone. think it's too violent for TV PG. I think it's really violent for for its rating. Sean, did you think it was too anyway, violent? I thought it was like Star Wars violence, but it's like P- it didn't bother me. But some Star I'm Wars are PG 13s and some are. PG. I'm going to watch it with Brent. The sex scene took me out of it. That was a bit much. Yeah, but that was in the after credits, though. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was and I mean, it was it was intimate. Mm. But like you're just not used to seeing that in a Star Wars right. story. So, the anyway. Force Awakens. Anyway. <laughs> you're a man in a DeLorean. <laughs> Come on, that did, that did not get as much credit as it deserves. Oh. And I'm going to bring it up again. Did you guys again. see that they changed the Greedo scene again? Yeah. I yes, that. I did see what that. What are they yes, doing? Did what are they I know. doing? All right, Gabe's going to lose his mind because right, we have a hard out. We got to go. All right, you can listen to us. Uh, f- follow us on social media at Jake's Takes. At Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean O'Toole O'Connell. Of course, the show at Real Blends. Uh, put us a review on iTunes. Send us a review via email. We will read it at the bottom of the show. We'll be back next week um, where our guest is going to be, oh, be Trey Edward Schultz from the movie Waves. And we have a few other really big guests that we're potentially lining up until we are back with you for episode number 93 Dunkirk. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.